Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We're excited to bring you another great episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience listening to us. Uh, most days you can watch on Facebook Live. Uh, thanks for tuning in if you do. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwans Podcast, as well as our website, you guessed it, juwans.com. Also, make sure you're following us on Instagram. We are at Juwans and on Twitter for all the updates at Juwans Podcast. And please make sure to subscribe if you haven't. Spotify, Apple, Podcast, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to your podcast. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a five-star review. It really makes a difference. How you doing, man? Well, it's, uh, we had an intense episode last week um, with John Daly, the, well, just to, to make it even sound, clickbaitier, the Jewish neo the former Jewish neo-Nazi. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like that, and the story is a lot more complicated and interesting, I think. But today we hope to have a, a lighter episode, um, a more inspiring yeah, episode. Yeah, we, we received some messages that, uh, <laughs> that it was a little intense and we dark, dark. And, and we hope to, to, to give you a much lighter and more uplifting experience today. I apologize for that. We're on a, we're in a WeWork actually. Uh, I'm Evan Virol, and we're sitting here with the superstar Inval Arielli. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks. Happy to be here. We're we're so glad you. Uh, we know how tech CEOs can be very busy. Yes, and, and I'm now I'm now hoping to meet the expectations of a lighter, more entertaining. Unless you have some dark story. You yeah, you, there's no like, extremist past. That <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever recruited to ISIS and had to become a secret Jewish ISIS terrorist? No, no, okay. no. So okay. I think we'll Not be yet. Okay. I think we'll be. Not yet. <laughs> Keep your hopes up. <laughs> no, but, but we, um, this week in Israel, so last week we had Holocaust Memorial Day, um, and the episode happened to tie in kind of with Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, this week it's Yom Hazikaron. It's the Memorial Day for Fallen Soldiers, followed immediately by uh, Independence Day. Our Independence Day celebrations. Um, what are we? Seventy three now, right? We're going to be seventy three. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, one, you know, we we have uh, just because of of my background and Benny's background, we kind of trend towards politics and society and those kind of things. And I'm sure we'll get into politics and society also as well. But um, we f- we thought it would be a, a fun break. Um, to dive into a world that we're not as deeply connected to and is really one of Israel's bright spots, and that's the world of tech. And so we kind of reached out and we asked around who would be a really good person to talk about the Israeli tech miracle, the Israeli tech success story. And we were told that there's this woman in Balagheli, and she's got a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> I'll say it with an American accent and not with an Israeli accent. Yeah. I think there's a difference, right? There is. So uh, before we do that and before we introduce you um, to our audience, we just got a quick announcement. 
So check it out, everybody. As uh, as we know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. Uh, we rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we keep the party going. So uh, we would really appreciate it if you would uh, take a look at the wonderful list of guests that we've had. Think about it real hard and think, how can we keep this going? How can we bring more great guests and deliver wonderful content to you? Uh, and the answer to that is by making a very, very nice, uh, small or large contribution to our or, or site. Mid-size, your or mid-size. Your choice. Uh, you can make a one-time contribution to our PayPal or a ongoing contribution to our Patreon account. We really appreciate it. For more information, visit www.juance.com. Dan, I think, what, we're in 110 countries now? We're up to 110 countries. Listeners in 110 countries, literally all over the world. Um, recent listeners joining us from South America and from Mongolia. Uh, I really want to know who this Mongolian listener is. If you're I'm imagining it's a guy in a yurt. I'd love it if it was a guy in a yurt. It's like closetly really interested in Jewish content. Riding his traditional Shavalsky horse around the plains of Mongolia. Don't ask me why I know that. Yeah, why do you know that? Don't ask me. <laughs> Bizarre. That's a really, really obscure trivia. That's the kind of horses they have in Mongolia. And um, and listening to these guys on Juanced and uh, learning all about Israel and the Jewish world. <laughs> uh, but also, if, if you're an organization or a community or a company and you want to sponsor an episode... Um, and get your name out there, uh, please contact us on our website, www.juance.com. Or if you want to have us uh, moderate your next communal event or corporate event or any kind of that thing, uh, reach out to us and we would be glad to do that. We've already had a few very successful such episodes, such as Meet the Emiratis, where we brought new Emirati friends and uh, introduced them to friends across Israel and across the Jewish world. Good times. So what are we doing today? Introduce our guest, Dan. So we've got with us <laughs> Inbal Ariely, a serial entrepreneur, and you're going to have to explain what that is in a second, and a tech influencer, you're going to have to explain what that is in a second, the founder of Synthesis, a global leadership assessment firm, a graduate of the elite IDF 8200 intelligence unit, which is Israel's NSA, mm-hmm. I guess we could call it, yeah. a noted speaker and author of Chutzpah, which we'll show here in a second, why Israel is a hub of innovation and entrepreneurship. Born in Israel and raised on Humus and Chutzpah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Arieli fostered her entrepreneurial skills during her mandatory military service, serving as a lieutenant in 8200 unit, the elite intelligence corps. After completing her military duties and for the past 20 years, she embraced leading executive roles in the flourishing Israeli tech sector and has founded a series of programs for innovators where she currently holds board seats. She lectures widely to business and government leaders around the world. And among her most popular keynotes are Chutzpah, the roots of entrepreneurship, from special forces to the boardroom, and the secrets of successful interviews. I'm sure you love listening to your bio in front of you. I know we all do, right? Um, you have a degree in law. That's impressive. Economics and an MBA. Uh, so clearly you are an underachiever. <laughs> and featured as one of the 100 most influential people in Israeli tech and one of the top 100 tech business women speakers in the world. We are thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. What are you up to these days? Wow. Um I kind of divide my time between several projects. Well, the first thing is my family. That's I'm the most the important mo- project. Exactly. I'm That's also a, a, a mother to uh, three boys, so that and two dogs. Boy so or girl dogs? Are they both boys? Does it make a difference? The dogs, yeah. one and one. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> And um, so that's one, of course, a big part of my life. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Synthesis. You'll have to tell us what that means. Yes. And I do a lot of additional work around chutzpah. Um, the book, 
which came out in the U.S. a year and a half ago, uh, but since has been translated in translated into several languages, uh, mostly Southeast Asia. So, uh, so Taiwan, um, Korea, China, Japan, hmm. and Vietnam coming up next. Awesome. Yeah. Is it getting a big market there? Well, there is a big market there. There's a huge market there. I mean, exactly. it's getting a lot of interest. It's just China and Japan just came out like literally two weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, still a soft launch. Korea, yes, big market and a lot of interest. And what's interesting is that each country, it's each market is looking at the same content but from a different perspective mm. and actually seeing different things and looking for different things. So um, let's show these to our audience here. And yeah. we, will, we will put these on the show notes Perfect, and we will put you. links to where people cool. can buy these books. Great, thanks. So this is the English version. You want to hold that up to it's the camera? by HarperCollins. Published by HarperCollins. Did you write it first in Hebrew or in English? Should I do English. like a Vanna White? Like a yeah, you should. I think it, so I, think I wrote it originally in English and then it was translated into Hebrew. Who published it in Hebrew? Yediot Sforim. Yediot. That's yeah. uh, one of the big publishers here. And then... We have also here, this is this the... This is the Korean version. Oh, cool. I like that cover. It is a cool cover. This is and the this is Japanese. the Japanese version. I actually studied four years of Japanese. Oh, cool. I don't, I don't remember more than five words, but I studied four years. I was actually an ace student in Japanese once upon a time. So, so this is the Japanese version. That's the Japanese version. Yeah, and unfortunately, the Taiwanese and the Chinese, which are two different versions of Chinese. One right. is simplex and one is complex Chinese. I don't have the copies yet. They're mm -hmm. on their way. That's really cool. What, what are some of the differences you're noticing um, in, in how the different countries and the cultures and languages are picking up on different parts of the book? So there are two main differences. Uh, I'm putting aside Israel, of course, which sure. is, of course, you know, a different market for the book because it's telling the story of Israelis. So uh, um, they're reading it in a different way. One... One thing is the lens through which they're actually mostly interested in the content. So the book is about, it's a business book. It was published by Harper Business. And in all of these countries, it's published by a business-focused publisher. So on one hand, it's a business book focused on the, the skills for the future, right? But it tells the story of Israeli childhood. And so some countries, some regions are actually more interested in the the childhood story, mm. okay, and the not the parenting, but actually how do you cultivate such a um, economy, such personality traits, the soft skills I'm speaking about, but from the perspective of children, mm. and other are actually looking at it from the business perspective of you know business organizations, startups, um, growth companies, um, and so that's two complete different angles yeah. to look at that. That's one difference. And the second thing is... I'm curious, which countries are doing which? So Japan is more interested in the um, parenting aspect of it or the, ed the education aspect mm. of it. Korea is more interested in the business aspect of it. The, the what can the CEO do now versus exactly. what can the parents do for the next generation? For in the future, yeah, yeah. And how do you foster it in a long-term strategic planning? Exactly. Mm. Um, Taiwan is more... Um, interested in the the general story the inspiring story of it okay of the israeliness around it china we'll see uh, because it's a huge market and, and i guess that we'll have to wait for the first reviews to see how people react to the book mm. 
So it's not, you know, and that, that is also something which is relevant to tech companies. It's not just what you intend and what you plan. It's also how the receptor uh, views the content. Right. It's, it's always interesting how East Asia, um, who's been a miraculous economic success story since World War II, essentially, um, in a region ravaged during World War II, has really sprung up. And some of them are democratic and some of them are not. And some of them weren't democratic and now they are. But all of them have very vibrant economies, uh, manufacturing and tech economies. And so it's, it's, and they're fascinated with the Israeli success yeah, very story. Very fascinated right? with the Israeli so success story. So this is exactly the kind of um, the books that they're probably looking at to try mm-hmm. to learn from those Jews, right? What can they, what can they learn? Yeah. Amazing. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where'd you grow up? We, we heard on some other podcasts that you spent some time living abroad and, you know, just fill us sure. in on, on how you got to, to where you are. Sure. So I'm uh, 100% Israeli. Born in Israel in Be'er Sheva, actually, uh, which is in the south of the country. Um, my mother immigrated um, after uh, the Holocaust from Poland. My father immigrated during the same years, in the early 50s, from Egypt. Hmm. And they met in university, in Be'er Sheva, in Ben-Gurion University. Um, I'm the youngest of three siblings, so I have two older brothers. First, and spent my first years in Be'er Sheva, Typical Israeli childhood, really nothing too special. Uh, and at the age of four, we actually moved to Geneva. Four? My dad's work. He was then working um, for Elal, for the security. He was um, chief of security of Elal. In the Geneva station. In the Geneva station, exactly. And these were the late 70s. Oh, that was, there was some action there. There was a lot of action lot of uh, in the yeah. air. Yeah. Yes, for, the, for those exactly. who aren't aware, there was a lot of... Um, Palestinian terror organizations mm-hmm. hijacking Israeli planes. I mean, yes, right? exactly those years. Yeah. And so he was brought into Elal from another um, organization in Israel and was uh, uh, working in the station for these years. We then came, and I went to the International School of Geneva. So I spent actually my first real childhood memories are from around the age of four or five from Geneva. So this explains your fantastic English. Well, it expl- I think <laughs> it explains at least my accent, or yes, the the, gr- the grammar, I don't know, basics <laughs> of it. Yes, yes, definitely. Thank you. Um, and then at the age of seven, we came back to Israel. So from Be'er Sheva, south, I mean, and, and late 70s, not Be'er Sheva of today, to Geneva, okay? The green, beautiful... Yeah, for, for um, those who aren't aware, Be'er Sheva is a desert. Mm-hmm. Be'er Sheva and Geneva couldn't, they, they, like you couldn't find two more diametrically <laughs> opposed exactly. cities. And it, and it, now it's, it's developed quite nicely, or it's on a right trajectory, let's say. But in the 70s, it was kind of a periphery town, right? It was a, 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 totally a perfect right? town. It had a lot of great people in it, but sure. it was literally the middle of the desert. Yeah. Um, I mean, the landscape is yellowish, sandy, um, Super warm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not very, I don't know, inspiring. Um, unless you really love the desert. Which I do. Which I also yeah, do. I do um, but the transition from yeah. Be'er Sheva to, <laughs> to Switzerland, Switzerland, <laughs> right? The mountains and, of course, the, all the, the botanics uh, and the lakes. There's, like you said, no real strongest extremes than that. And then from Switzerland, we came back to Israel and we um, moved to Omer, 
Omer is just outside of Be'er Sheva. It's a small community, communal, I don't know. Like a suburb. Like a suburb. Well, yeah, neighborhood or... In America, I think you would call it like a development. It's yeah. like a... It's not, though. It's like it's... Like a suburb, suburb, a suburb, like a small yeah. suburb of yes. Be'er Sheva. Really like seven kilometers out of Be'er Sheva. Um, great, great, great place for kids to grow up in. Because it was back then, it was super safe. We were, so I was, I lived in Omer from the age of um, seven till the age of 10. Mm. And I literally think, I think that really I spent only nights at home. Like we were outside yeah. all day long with my, you know, classmates, with my friends at the age of seven, eight, nine, it felt super, super safe. We were going to the swimming pool by ourselves. We did everything by ourselves. It was a great place to, uh, to grow up in. Very different from Switzerland again, Okay. Um, spent three years there, and then we moved from Omer to Brussels, Belgium. Mm. Again, my dad's work, something different this time. And um, Brussels is also very different from Omer, from Israel in general. And in Brussels, I went, and that's where I have learned French. I went to a Jewish school, so not the international school this time, but a Jewish school, um, and made great friends for life. Um, Jewish, Belgium kids, and we were a few Israelis there. Was it a religious school or just like a regular? So the first year we went to a religious school because there's also there's always, at least there has been in the past, again, it's a little different nowadays, yeah. um, a prob- uh, an issue, a constraint of security, mm. right? Securing these schools for the Israeli kids that are coming, um, the diplomats. And so the first year we were at a, a religious school, which was terrible. And at the end of that year, they took all of the Israeli kids out of that school and put them in a, a private, super expensive, um, non-religious, but Jewish school and had to change all the security and um, reorganize the entire Jewish community there around that. Um, there were back, back then in the early 80s or mid 80s, there were a lot of Israelis in Brussels. Mm. Um, it was before the EU. But Cytex, talk speaking about tech, Israeli tech, already in the early 80s, Cytex and Orbotech, two giant Israeli companies back then, had um, facilities in Brussels. Mm. And so there were a lot of tech people working there, relocating to Brussels. And there were also all the Israeli diplomats. Um, Brussels is in the middle of Europe, literally right. in the middle. And again, speaking of politics, geopolitics, the mid-80s 80s IPO's office was in Brussels oh. um, and Ashaf. And these were also very uh, troublesome years, I would say. Yeah, the, the PLO, Ashaf is the, the PLO. PLO. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so our listeners are aware. Um, right. This is pre-Oslo days. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we came back to Israel after four years to Kfar Saba, which is a city in the center of Israel. But... Up until this moment, or even another um, part of another um, four years, I live my life in uh, um, four-year sequences. Yeah, four-year increments bouncing from place exactly. to place and making your, your way further north in Israel as you go from Bel Sheva to Omer yes, to Kfar Saba. to Kfar Saba, and then to Tel Aviv. Oh, okay, you yeah. came back south. Yeah, so, so the next time you had to go to like Netanya and then Haifa and then you're, you're in Lebanon already. So it's <laughs> <laughs> stop going abroad. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Did you like moving around like that? 
Did you think about it at the time? No, I didn't think about it at the time because it was just, you know, it was my life. Um, did I enjoy it? Yes. I'm not sure I loved it, okay? And, you know, as a kid, you're not really proactive about it. You just do what you're told, right? Um, you move with your family. But I personally enjoyed it very much. So, um, and I have friends from different, you know, places in the world, and sure. I have a different observation yeah. and perspective about different things. And of course, the languages and the, you know, the cultures and the, the things that I've seen and traveled at a very young age. Did it make you, I'm trying to understand Israel of like that, that era, was it, were you cool when you came back to Israel that you had lived in Brussels or that you had lived in Geneva? Did your friends in Falsaba look at you like, oh, Inba's awesome. It's she, a she funny question, it. you know why? Because on one hand, yes. I mean, those were times where Israelis did not travel a lot, right? And, right. right? Yeah. Not even for tourism, it was different. So on one hand, yes, it was super cool. But, but I have so many funny anecdotes about, for example, I remember coming back from um, Switzerland, from Geneva, wearing um, a swatch, a watch by swatch, which in Switzerland was extremely, you know... Common. Common. Yeah. And like it was um, the regular swatches, so they're analog mm -hmm. swatches. And like people looked at me like, are you crazy? Why are you wearing a... <laughs> I was a kid, okay? I mean, those are just funny examples, uh, and I have many of those. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, I think it, it gave me a lot, for sure. Right. And, it, and, it, and it equipped me with a lot of the, the assets that I have as an adult, yeah. the person I've became. And we'll get into your, your military background because that seems to be at the heart of kind of what you've become or what you developed. And also the, the book seems to be very much, it's an observation of, the, of how the Israeli success story came to be from one perspective, right? And those are the kind of things that having an outsider perspective, mm -hmm. you, you have to have because if you're smack in the middle of it, you're just in it. That's who you are and you can't think about yourself, right? Right, but you know, we're speaking about nuances today, so you need to have the ability to look at it from the outside, mm. but if you're not from the inside, it makes it more difficult to really understand yeah. and to see and to understand the whys, because if you're, if you're only from the outside, I don't want to use the word superficial, but you see only the, the, the very extreme differentiators, yeah. such as the military, mm -hmm. okay, which is a huge differentiator for Israel, right? But if you're, if you're from the inside, you're capable and you have the ability to observe things with different perspectives, you then have a better understanding on the why. Right. Right, right. Absolutely. So, so you, you become 18-ish years old and you get recruited to the army like we all do here mm -hmm. in Israel. And you get taken to the, the famed 8200 unit. Yes. What's that process like? Do, what's going on in your head? Did you know about it? I didn't know, did you know I did, what I did you not were getting know. into. No, not at all. I didn't know anything about it. Back then, 8200 was not famous as it is today. It was not out there. Nobody used the word, the, even the, you know, the, the term 8200. And um, you start the recruiting process, the screening process, what, at the age of 17, 17 yeah. and a half, while you're in high school. Right. And you you'd go through some tests. You come to a few interviewing days. And then you get, uh, which are very challenging and very motivating. So they know how to actually, you know, um, encourage you and motivate you into wanting that. Okay, because motivation is key here. And you get then an answer that you were 
selected and it's great and you you don't ask too many questions it's part of the process is really dealing with ambiguity mm. it's designed into that process because later on in your profession in the military you have a lot of ambiguity to deal with and um yeah and then i went on a course um a pre-military course actually so 80 to 100 in some of its professions some of its tracks has a pre-military course so you actually join the course you're selected and it's in addition to your military service and it's done before so so maybe actually let's take a step back for our listeners what, what is 8200 uh, and, and super simple 8200 is the nsa okay so same challenges same responsibilities it's the central um communication and signals intelligence unit same thing as in the united states or any other country in the world mm -hmm. but the main difference is the formal difference is that in israel the nsa 8200 is part of the military and it's not a governmental agency which is out of the military let's take another example in israel the mossad an intelligence agency it's out of the mil it's not a military organization right but it's a right. governmental one so 8200 is the equivalent of the nsa only it's part of the military by definition if it's part of the military it means that the professionals at 8200 are soldiers right a super simple so that's the thing does that have an impact on on anything that would differentiate it from, let's say, an ethos that the NSA would have it, it, by being a soldier, by being made up of citizen soldiers? Is it uh, yes, yes, it, on so many levels? Okay, and the book speaks a lot about that because you're not pursuing a career in eighty two hundred, or at least most, the vast majority of eighty two hundred professionals, those soldiers, they they're not pursuing a career there. They come for a limited period of time, on average, more than their mandatory military service. So on average, they would come for four years, and that's it. And so that's a big difference. The second difference is that they're, they're 18 when they start. Yeah, they're young. <laughs> they're young. NSA people are mathematicians usually. Or, or, or professionals of different types yeah. in their 30s. Experts, in their, right. Yes, mm -hmm. They're not, they don't, they're, they don't have the right, not the right, they don't have a relevant education, formal education for that. They're high school graduates. So a lot of things are different. But the challenges and the, the mission is the same. You have a, two great examples of great organizations, very successful organizations that, are, that have the same mission and the same challenges and the same tasks, different resources, um, and completely different way of achieving those goals. Yeah, um, it's said from foreign press reports that it's the largest unit in the Israeli military. Me, yeah, it's about what five thousand ish people. Again, I'm going based We're on. Not, I don't know foreign press. You'll reports. have to ask Probably. your foreign press reports. Yes, um, exactly. Foreign press reports. Um, and, and we, you know, we've had a couple episodes. It's where not five had, guys in a room. It is. It is not five guys in a room, or five girls in a room, or five anybody in a room. Um, it's it's a big unit, and um, we've had different kinds of intelligence-related episodes on the show. Usually, where we get into the intelligence side of things, um, but uh, for for those listeners who aren't aware, this is where you have both the let's call them the computer experts, mm -hmm. the cyber experts. Uh, Pre-computer days, they had you know uh, we can assume they were tapping phones, these kind of things, and language experts, right? Yes. So uh, yes, but but. Con and content experts. Yeah. And okay. Content because experts, eventually, right. after all, the information is not about 
bites, bits and bytes of information, sure. digital or non-digital, it's about processing, yeah. okay, and analyzing and understanding what that information is all about. Can, can you talk at all about what you did uh, at any any level of what you were you were doing, what your job was as an eighteen year old now in in the eighty two hundred unit? So as an eighteen year old, I joined an a specific with within eighty two hundred. I joined a specific you know group of people, division, department, um, which was uh, using let's say non Arabic speakers. Okay, so I'm, I don't speak Arabic. Never learned Arabic. Um, and um, that's one thing I can say. I can say that after a few months, I actually went into officer school, which, by the way, is different in Israel than in other countries in the world because yep. we actually go to officer school after we start a military service. And we're, we're picked from actually, you know, the, the regular soldiers. It's not a, a, a track which is initiated in advance. And then I came back as, a, as an officer, as a team leader to the same team that I came out of and led it for another two and a half years. I was on the intelligence part. So I'm not a coder. I'm, I've never programmed in the military. I was more on the intelligence professional part. And that's, that's all I can say, even sure. though it has been like 20 something years ago. Do you, how do you think it um, shaped you? Oh, in so many ways. It, it shaped me in a lot of ways. But again, we're speaking, I'll use the word nuance a lot uh, today. Well, for, you can even yes. use the word nuance. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, when, when thinking about the Israeli um, tech miracle and everything that's coming out of here, and like I said, there's a lot of emphasis around the world and a lot of interest into the Israeli military. Because the notion is that, oh, this is a very unique military organization. It operates in different ways than other military organizations. It, it, and it's, it's giving life to all these entrepreneurs and all that innovation coming out of it. So something special has to happen there. Like your question, how did it shape me, right? I think, and chutzpah is a lot about that, is that, yes, er, that conclusion is correct, but there is so much more deeper than that into understanding Israeli childhood before 18. So the military shaped me. Uh, I was in a very critical age between 18 and 23 in the military. But it shaped me the way it shaped me because of what I actually brought already with me. Who you were before you, yes, you got recruited. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, so, and, and, and it's right, for, not just for in Balagieli, I think it's right for every soldier in the Israeli military. We, we enter that environment, that setting, already equipped mm. with some mindsets and some capabilities that then, when meeting the environment of the military, are reinforced. So to your question, it shaped me in many ways. But it's not the beginning of it. Okay, and that's very important to say because otherwise it's very difficult to, A, really understand what's happening in the Israeli military and how come a military organization is capable of producing, producing, or giving stage to so many entrepreneurs. It's counterintuitive. Mm. And B, for those in Israel, and we have more and more younger people that are either not joining the military for different reasons 
or are joining the military after a gap year or national service year, there are other frameworks that are doing the same. So I'm very careful in focusing all the conversation on the military. Yeah, sure. No, Absolutely. and it makes sense. Uh, I, I will say, you know, I, I, I made Aliyah when I was 23 and I joined the army when I was 24. Um, and in my mind, I was going on a career path. Like I had decided kind of more, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. And I did it for, for eight years. Um, one thing that I was astounded by, especially when I made my way to intelligence, was that, you know, this country entrusts young people. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, okay, you know, one thing we have here that they don't have a lot of countries, especially the U.S., where we have a lot of listeners, is mandatory conscription, Right. Um, which means for the most part, with the exception of certain parts of society that don't serve, the army recruiters look at you already in high school. And this is something that you've mentioned in in a couple different places. They're not looking at your grades necessarily or, you know, if, if we compare this to, um, you know, both you and I went to college in America and, and, and how you apply to college in America. It's like, oh, I got this GPA. I took honors classes. I was in theater. I was on the football team. I was in debate club. I was in whatever. Uh, okay, this is an accomplished person. Um, this is something that you talk about a lot or you've written about in, in that what is the army looking for? Because in Israel, I mean, how do you, okay, maybe someone didn't want to do a whole lot in high school or how, how does the army and specifically the more elite units that that require intelligence and, and other um, qualities. How do they approach that? What I saw when I made my way, and I was already probably 30 by the time I made it to intelligence, was that 18, 19, and 20-year-olds are entrusted with, literally with Israel's national security. These are people that did not go to college, mm-hmm. and they do a fantastic job. And yeah. they are wonderfully responsible. Yeah. They are unbelievably mature for their age. And... I could have taken any of these, let's say, 19-year-olds without a degree, and, and, and I've seen this, and we sat them in rooms with mm-hmm. you know, CIA counterparts or British counterparts who were in their 30s with master degrees, and they were going toe-to-toe with them on whatever it is that they were supposed to, right? So how does this process work? How does the, and, and this kind of feeds into your thesis here, right? Yes. So it's... it's or, even where, or even mm-hmm. where does that come from? Well, if we're just talking like uh, uh, culturally speaking... You know, you and I coming from the states, the idea of doing that, of entrusting that information and security to it to somebody with that age in that country is perceived as literally a child almost. It seems irresponsible. It could seem it could seem irresponsible. Whereas here, ever since the early days of the state, perhaps it's it's been a call to duty at that age, and that's just been something that do you, do you find that it's something that is uniquely Israeli? I think so. Where does it come from? Yeah. Out of necessity. Back in our history, modern history or less modern history, and, and today in the military, there's no other choice. Okay? So th- there is no other option. You have to trust these 18, 19 year olds because they're the only pool of talent that you can actually approach in those masses that would be relevant. So it comes out of necessity, but it actually proves that it could work and that you don't necessarily have to, you need to have this long CV, accomplishments, credentials. If you're capable of finding other ways of assessing okay. Okay, potential and individuals, and we can talk about that, that's exactly what we do at Synthesis at our company. So how do you actually assess personality traits 
and potential, okay, rather than just rely on past accomplishments right. and credentials. And because of that necessity, the Israeli elite special units and the Israeli military in general needed to come up and still need to, by the way, evolve and develop their methodologies, their screening methodologies. Now, I th- you asked, is it different from other places in the world? Yes. But when you think of it, I think that only in the past, what, 50, 60, 100 years, 18-year-old individuals, human beings, are regarded as children. True. Right? That's true. Not yeah. so many years ago, at the age of 15 or, or 16, you would go out and start, you know, working. Yeah. So it's... You'd be, you'd be married by the time you were 18 and having, you know, your family. Yeah, and, and just starting... Right? Yeah, and, and being responsible for, 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 for bringing bread home, right? So it's just how we... It's, again, a matter of perception of how we look at these young people at the age of 18. In many developed cr- countries, we like to think of them as irresponsible kids, mm. whereas they are capable of being extremely responsible. We just need to build the right stage for so, them. So, so this is actually a good segue then to go back, perhaps, towards what is, the, what is that person? How, what it, Israeli parenting style the childhood that Israelis uh, experience here and, and how it differs maybe from their Western counterparts or American counterparts. Or, or East Asian counterparts. Mm. I mean, because your book yes. is now going to hopefully right. be very popular in East Asia. Right. Da- Dan and I, we should just say, we both have Israeli children. Uh, and I think that their childhood is remarkably different from the childhood that we experienced. I have an Israeli mother too. I, I grew up in America with an Israeli mother. Wow. So I, I have an even different twist on this. But yes, we now both have Israeli children raising them in central Israel. Um, so yeah, what, and this is kind of the crux of the book, exactly. right? And you'll explain this. First of all, what is chutzpah? What is chutzpah? <laughs> so chutzpah is a great name, a great title for a book there you go. <laughs> <laughs> by a U.S. publisher who's genius in, in marketing. That, w- that wasn't your idea? No. Oh, really? Actually, that's interesting. And, and I told that story, so I feel free to say it again. I was, at the beginning, I didn't want that. When they, uh, when Harper Business... Harper Collins came up with the title and suggested it, I was against it. Because for me as an Israeli, chutzpah is a negative trait. Yeah, we, right? we were talking about this on the car, you know, on the way on here. On the way here, that it's... It, it's like, you don't want to be called a chutzpah. A chutzpah no. is someone who has chutzpah, right? It's right, who's impolite, who's... Arrogant, rude. Arrogant, rude, yeah. yeah. And we kept having this conversation between the publisher and, and myself, and of course they said... We'll never call title the book a name that you don't feel comfortable with, but but let's try to understand because in their eyes, sitting in New York, okay, mm-hmm. chutzpah is regarded in a much more positive way. Yeah, and we had to mitigate that gap, okay, on how we see that. Now, when did that happen? And it's it, it's he's quoted in the book. Jack Ma was in Israel uh, for the inauguration of the. Um, the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation, mm. and 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 I was the there. The founder of Alibaba. The right? founder of Alibaba, <laughs> and has, I was at the who ceremony. Who now has to pay a lot of taxes yes, to the Chinese yes. government? So yeah, this is pre his recent disappearance. Yes, pre his recent disappearance and and his yes and the the huge fine that he needs now to pay, and he was on stage there saying, um, it's, "It's his second visit to Israel, and on his first visit, he learned two things. One is the importance of innovation." And he talked about that. And then the second, he said in his words, is chutzpah 
dare to challenge. Mm. And when he said that, I realized that for, the, for most of the world, chutzpah is regarded as this audacity. This, audacity, yeah, that's a good word, yeah. This positive motivation to go against you know, the status quo, but for, for, for doing something right, for doing something better. And on that day, I emailed the publisher and I told them, okay, we're going with chutzpah. I understand the difference. And to my surprise, actually, the Israeli publisher decided to keep chutzpah. So you decide on this name, chutzpah, and you're convinced that it can work. How has it worked in Israel, by the way? Like, So in Israel, that's where we actually put um, the most editing after the book was released in the U.S., so from other languages, uh, because we had to reorganize the entire content and not tell the stories of Israelis, of Israeli childhood to people who have not grown here. But, you know, the readers are Israelis who have experienced that firsthand. So it required a lot of work. It's being very well recepted. Um, what's interesting and very motiv- very moving to me is that, you know, Israelis are cynical. Like, they, they've, they've heard it all. They have an opinion about everything. They, they really do. <laughs> right? But everyone, every person who reads the book always has something to say, which is part of the book, by the way, right? It's part of the chutzpah. It is. But I've always heard that it made them re-understand why they love Israel. Hmm. And for me, that's a great achievement. If, you know, if I can remind people and each have a different reason and each have a different angle and a different element that touches them, and, but if I can remind them why they love their, the, why they love Israel and they loved living here, that's great. Terrific. And I actually notice in in just looking at the covers or the the binding of of the English version of the book versus the Israeli ber- version of the book. In English, the title is Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and in Hebrew, the English translation would be Israeli Childhood and Global Innovation. So there there is. To frame it in that way for mm-hmm. for Israelis, it's 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 interesting and it's also quite special because I don't think that Israelis necessarily understand how different their child rearing approach is compared to. Well, I don't think unless you've others. lived in other countries, like in Balhaz, right. or you can see right, you can, you see. can see the differences. The differences yeah. So, what drove you to write the book? So I was um, I was speaking a lot to global organizations, either coming to Israel or, you know, abroad, interested in the miracle of, of the startup nation, right? And um, and trying to understand why. And and they're all fascinated what, by what's happening here, but they're always also trying to understand what happened here. And typically, all the focus was around the military. Yeah. Right? Oh, start, startup nation. Startup nation right, and, and many other nation. articles about the Israeli military and, 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 and in general, the... the the understanding is that the main differentiator is the the mandatory conscription, and the spe- the again the military and the technology in Israeli military, um, and the different values that exist in the military that are at the basis of the reasons of why Israel is so successful in in tech and innovation, and I always accepted with that conclusion. And agreed with it, but I felt there was something missing. And there was, you know, everything that, that's happening before the age of 18 and before the military that's missing. And that 
foreign observers or external observers, they, they just don't see. Mm. And so um, coming off stage um, in, at the end of 2013 in a conference in Napa Valley, I shared a few on stage. I, I shared like two stories. Actually, it was one main story, the story of Lagba Omer, what kids do at Lagba Omer in Israel with the audience. And I was speaking about my own kids. You want, you want to clue in our Well, so Lag Bomer is, is a Jewish holiday as Jewish as Rosh Hashanah or, or Pesach or Hanukkah or Purim. But in most Jewish communities outside of Israel, people don't really celebrate Lag Bomer, right? Because it's, it's one evening and the, the, the custom, what you usually do is you light a bonfire. A big bonfire. A big bonfire, <laughs> right? Um, and I mean... In Brussels, we, we never did that. The Jewish community in Brussels never celebrated Lag Bomer, maybe in the synagogue in a specific prayer. I, I don't even know, but, but not as a community because we you, never don't, did either. you don't like maybe bonfires, you no. right? It was a very, it's a very Israeli tradition. Right, but it's a Jewish holiday. <coughs> yeah. And, it, so, and it's, it's not a secular one, that's what I'm trying to say. Right. And, and what's happening at Lag Bomer, the, the, the beauty of it in my eyes is that it's a project that kids love naturally, lighting bonfires. But they, <laughs> you, you run around the neighborhood all day looking for, uh, right. looking for empty pallets, uh, wood scraps. Like and roving construction sites looking for, yeah. Exactly. Can, yeah, you exactly. see them dragging it down the street a month before. And you carry them on a supermarket card that you've borrowed from the supermarket for borrowed, like yes. borrowed a month or so. Temporarily. And you do it in teams, you don't do it alone. And there's, it's an entire project that when mm. you actually unpack it, You see a lot of soft skills in that project, which is led and managed and initiated and executed by nine, 10, 11-year-old kids. So I was showing- That also light the fire afterwards. That also light the fire. Yes, exactly. The, the whole and miraculously, thing. not many get injured. No. It, it stuns me every year. But it's not miraculously. It's exactly that. It's they are trained or the, from a very young age, not- strategically, not as a philosophy, but just by life, to manage risks. And when given the responsibility and the accountability, they, I don't know, they just know what to do with it. So I was showing a picture on stage, and a photo of my kids in a bonfire, and I was telling the story of Lag Baumer. And coming off stage, um, someone approached me and said, um, that was really interesting, where can I read more? And I was like, I don't know where you can, the internet, where can you read more? Like, right? I, I didn't understand even the question. And then a second person approaches me and says, where can I read more about what you were just saying? Where are you writing? By Facebook? I don't know. I, I was not writing anything at that time. And by the fifth person, and it's a true story, by the fifth person who approached me and asked offstage on that same conference in Napa Valley, where can I read more? I ran out of, you know, answers, and I said, oh, you'll have to wait. I'm writing a book about it. <laughs> Came back to the hotel. It was already late night in Napa Valley, early morning in Tel Aviv. Called my husband, called Neil, and I told him, you know what? You're not going to believe that, but I think I'm going to start writing a book. And that's when I decided to write Chutzpah, because I realized that there is an entire story that people are just missing And that is much more relevant 
to the entire world than the military itself. Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, I'll get into this maybe a little later because I want to hear more about what, what this is because I'm, as you're talking and as I was kind of, you know, preparing for this and reading some articles and a couple of podcasts you were on, I was thinking to myself all the things that I'm trying to do as a parent. My oldest kid is 12 and my youngest is six. I got and a nine-year-old in the middle. And it's like all the things that maybe I'm upset about, maybe I should mm. be less upset about and maybe more <laughs> encouraging of. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't ask me because you, you, yes. Probably the answer is yes. Um, is That's actually interesting though, but is, is Israeli parenting often about letting go? Well, first, Israeli parenting is usually not about parenting. I mean, the, obviously, there are a lot of kids here. We have the growest birth rate in the OECD countries, even in secular families, it's 2.7, it's a lot. But there is no real philosophy behind Israeli parenting. Right. Maybe you just wrote it. Or maybe it's just that part of the philosophy is that there are no best practices, okay? And it's part of the idea. And letting go is one of it because of many reasons, but also before letting go is giving a real place, real gravitas for your child of six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know how old, at all ages, and and treating them as relevant, okay, individuals around the table. Now, do they understand politics? Really? Not sure. Do they feel comfortable saying whatever they say around the Shabbat dinner table, about the elections? Yes. Should we stop them from saying, oh, you don't understand anything, you're too young? No. And again, it's not that what they say always makes total sense, but the fact that they feel allowed okay, to speak up, and it's not even speaking up, it's just being part of the conversation, that's a first example. It, it's true, and when you're saying that, what I'm thinking about is my childhood in the States, and I remember how many times it used to piss me off when we would go to some sort of a holiday and there would be a children's table, mm, and I would be sitting table. at the children's table. And I, sometimes, I mean, I was either six or seven, but like, you get to be like fourteen, and you're sitting at that children's <laughs> table. And it's like, it's like shit. Like, why, why am I not sitting at the the table with everybody else? I'm sitting here with like my six year old cousins. But in actuality, when I think about here in Israel, I've never once seen my kids or any kids for that matter sitting at an isolated children's table. I mean, just because of logistics. It's like, you can only fit so many people at the table. It's like, no, but so, so it's, I mean, it's okay sometimes to yeah, do it. Yeah. We also do it sometimes at but family. But like Friday night, when, when do you get together usually? Friday night, family? everyone's sitting together. Friday night, everyone's yeah. together. Holidays, people are usually together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Maybe at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, just by, by general dynamics, kids are getting together on their own. But mm-hmm. but yes, there's no, uh, you know, you're not, your opinion is not valid here. It's it's very... My, my son's into Eretz Nederet. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a political satire show. This is really like biting center and he loves it and 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 i love listening to what he thinks he understands from it mm-hmm. and he listens to the news with me sometimes and he asks more mm-hmm. questions but it's like it's like i i, I mean i try to watch what he finds amusing and yeah. what, what resonates with him and then like okay what, what did you get from that what do you think's going on here it's a, it, it's it is very interesting um i remember as a kid we had you know my parents would have people over we'd go to people's and, and yeah like maybe there was a kid's table but sometimes i would you know sit at the adult table and be included in that conversation and we'll have friends over who have older kids and now kind of my son's getting into that age but they'll have like 
you know, they'll have a high schooler over and there's no one in our family for them to play with. And so they'll sit with us. And I used to get annoyed about that. It's like, no, come on, just give us some adult time. Like, so we can, but, but it's, it can be just as interesting as the conversation when you let the, the early teen or the high schooler Mm -hmm. sit at the table with you and partake in that conversation. Yeah. So, so their voice being part of the conversation is means being part of the community means being part of life Mm -hmm. of society. So right. it's larger than than just and, and and then it means that they're taking on a more active role and they feel more responsible do you and think, they care more. Do you think more. Israelis are doing that more than other cultures? Yes, I think that the the central the centrality that kids that children play in our lives in Israel is different than in other countries. Yes, yes. Um, in a sense, we're everything is around them it's true the, the country at times feels like everything is centered around our yes, kids exactly uh, and when when you're in a small country you, you sense that quite uh, acutely um, and and uh, look also Israel has had some interesting experiments in parent in, in parenting as well I mean if you look even at the classic kibbutz right mm-hmm. where, where parents didn't necessarily raise their children the, the child was raised by the surroundings uh, also Many many refugees came to this country as children without parents, uh, and, and I'm, I haven't developed this at all. But it's just curious that that's a part of our history here yeah, as that's well. That's interesting. Um, it, look, makes you grow up pretty fast. Makes right? you grow up fast, and also you know. But I think here in Israel, parents also give their children a lot more freedom to be on Correct. their own. Yes, um, it's. I remember growing up in the states. The or I remember coming. I'll say it like this: I remember coming to Israel and seeing how. Eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds would be out in the street without their parents, sure. and it was a normal thing. And they would be just, you know, come home when you come home, and we're pretty sure that you're going to be okay because the neighborhood's looking out for you. You're not going to get into trouble. Uh, and, and that in America would be, I mean, we we grew up in like you know safe suburban surroundings, but the, even there, that would have been like, oh, today, I mean, no you, way. You can't imagine that in, in a place like America, or yeah. I don't know about Europe, but but in the U.S. for sure not. Do you think? Do you think part of the reason why? Israeli parents are willing to let go is because it's safer? So I think it's like everything. It's a combination of different elements. It's not one thing. A, yes, it is paradoxal. It is safer in Israel. So crime levels are relatively low in Israel. Sure. Okay. And the the lack of um, respect of one person's personal life is becomes an advantage when it when it comes to protecting foreign unknown kids on the street. What, what do you mean by that? So I mean that if I would just walk on the, here in central Tel Aviv and I would see a kid crying in the middle of the street or just, I don't know, by themselves and I would feel that something is not okay, I would, I would address that kid and I would check with him or her what's going on and I would even ask them personal questions things that in the U.S. I'm not sure you would do. Again, I'm not speaking life-dangering, uh, um, you know, accident. Yeah. But, but just... You're saying the, the, the personal space is, is treated differently. Is the personal space is treated differently and it has its disadvantages, but it has also a lot of, dis- of advantages, okay? Um, I mean, the, one of the maybe most extreme examples is one that we've seen recently all over the news here in Israel of this woman who was almost murdered by her husband and the kid, the eight-year-old kid insists of the neighbors 
right? Insisted with his, he was outside with his bicycle. He was insisting to bring his mother because he felt something was wrong mm-hmm. and she, she didn't hear anything. She almost left. And then he said again, no, but something is wrong here. And that lack of, and he, well, thanks to him, the, they saved her life, right? The, the, the woman who was almost murdered by her husband. Um, the lack of barriers, okay, um, is, is, is an, something that provides a lot of support or just, I, I feel, I know that when my kid is taking the bus, if here in Tel Aviv, if he would have any sort of problem, He would ask someone, someone will help him, it will be just fine. So that's one thing. Right. We also tend to, we're not skeptical of strangers here. No, we trust them. We trust them. But, but, and that has to do with the, low, the relatively low rates of crime, but also the fact that we, we all feel like brothers and sisters and we, we just trust each other. So it's two different elements. But there's more to that. It's also the fact that... Generally speaking, um, A, okay, A, the weather. So you want to spend more time outside than at home, okay? So kids like being outside. School ends at one, not on coffee days, but regular days. School ends at one o'clock, two o'clock. And you have the entire day now to fill in with activity for, for your kids, whereas most parents both work. So the kids are left more time by themselves. All of that together creates a situation where you feel either out of necessity or end the fact that you feel more safe here and that you trust your kids from a younger age. All of that together creates the environment where you feel, where you let go. So, but it's not one thing. And right. all of these elements together are, by the way, the chutzpah mindset. When I speak about the Israeli childhood, it's, it's one on top of the other. Sure. It's not one thing you can... Yeah. Something that came to my mind, and, you know, it's, it's something that we are not always comfortable talking about, especially when we're talking to foreign audiences, but, but we have to be fully cognizant of it. And you said, we're all like brothers and sisters here, right? It's like, it's like one big family. It's, and, and that's because we are an ethno-national state. This country is 80% Jewish. And most of the time, unless you live in specific neighborhoods, you either live in a Jewish city or an Arab city. You know, there are a few mixed parts of the country, but rarely. Do you think, you know, I compare, um, I'll, I'll compare it to America in parts of Europe where it's very mixed. It's not ethno-national. It's in America for sure, you know, it, it's completely mixed. Do you think, you know, something we've kind of discussed a lot, a lack of social cohesion You know, or, or that we have an abundance of social cohesion um, that is a part of this can, you know, you can look at a Korea or a Japan or a China where it is ethnically homogenous, um, but you can also then look at an America or a Canada where it is absolutely not ethnically homogenous. And do you think that makes a difference for how your book should be read and how the lessons, you know, that we're getting into here, how the insights you have into how to raise your children in this manner Um, should be understood? So from the Israeli perspective, well, first, the first thing I would do is I would check with someone who lives in a um, mixed city in, in Israel, Haifa or Lod, or I don't know, uh, um, and ask them their opinion on that. Because I live in Tel Aviv, sure. which is a super diversified place, right? Um, y- there is just everything 
in Tel Aviv. Um, but but it's 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 unique in that sense. So, so someone from a, what we call a mixed city that would be better equipped to answer this question. From the Israeli perspective, and let's focus for a second on the Jewish uh, community in Israel. For many years, the conversation was actually about different groups in the Israeli mm-hmm. Jewish community. Yeah. Okay. Ashkenaz, Sephirad, Olim Chadashim, new immigrants, Sabras. Right. I mean, y- you can always find, if you're interested in finding, in justifying, okay, different groups, you can always do that in any country. One of the reasons why Chutzpah, the book, is focused on modern Israel and Examples from today, like actual examples from nowadays, is a choice I made. Because mm-hmm. some of the traits I speak about in chutzpah is also, are also uh, rooted in our Jewish tradition. But I made a clear choice to myself to speak actually of the Israel that I live in day by day today. And for me, that Israel is actually a very diversified Um, community with people from so many different backgrounds and so many you know different stories um, that I do think that it's very diversified do you, do you know anything about you know you talked about safety like like feeling safe in the streets low crime rates I, I again I just don't know do you know anything about how things are again in let's say Asia in so, so let's take for example Japan I have yeah, a great please. story about Japan in Japan I've learned that That very young kids, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, they actually, in the big cities, they commute to school by themselves in the subway. And, and now it's not like a three minutes drive, it's like sometimes it's 40 minutes drive. And they go by themselves, which is a very non, you know, um, Asian uh, um, parenting, I would say, approach you, you, would, you would expect, right? You just let them go. But, you, but here's the thing. The thing is the difference. Why? So I try to understand why and how come in Japan, where things are much more organized and strict, right? Rigid. And rigid, kids are you know, commuting by themselves in the subway. So A, there's a very low rate of crime again. B, the reasoning, and th- there's even a terminology for that uh, um, Ac- not activity but that behavior of kids going by themselves it's it's enabled because of the structure actually and the fact that everyone keeps order so the the subway would arrive at the precise moment you can trust the system okay that everything will work as predetermined now in Israel you would see those seven eight nine year old kids who walking, walking to school, walking back from school, taking the bus sometimes, being by themselves on the streets, but for different reasons. It's not because uh, the, of the fact that the bus will arrive on time. We know we won't. That's no, not, right? not happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not happening. It's because that there is more trust in their, the kids' capability to deal with whatever will happen, including asking help from a foreigner, from a stranger. That's fine. So same behavior. Totally different. Totally different input. reasons. That's interesting. That's really interesting. That is interesting. 
So maybe maybe we can kind of take a shift. I I, I want to try to just for many of our listeners who who might not even before I get to that who mm-hmm. might not fully understand. Um, I I work in tourism. We've talked about this many times, and one of the things that people that come to this country are are definitely stunned with and interested in is to try to understand Israel's place or Israeli the, the Israeli high tech ecosystem in in general terms, but also to understand. And we were talking up until now as to sort of the the why, but let's talk about the what. Mm-hmm. So, could you for for a moment sort of take our listeners through a very brief tour in your own words of what Israeli high tech has given to the world, or what are we what sure. are we about, and where are we? And, and if you could include in that, we mentioned in the introduction, you're a serial entrepreneur and a tech influencer, and kind of what does that mean as you're giving us a, a tour of the Israeli tech okay. ecosystem? Yes, sure. So, so I'll start by saying that um, my personally, my entire career after um, I finished my military service, went to university, um, and then immediately entered this tech ecosystem. Okay, for the first ten years as a lawyer, as a general counsel to tech companies, um, and then that I did that for a decade, and then. Um, Back in 2010, I started my entrepreneurial journey. Okay, so we'll get back to that if you want of what, what were the, the, the blocks of my entrepreneurial journey yeah. in tech. But, but my sandbox, okay, or my playground is, we were speaking about kids, right, is the Israeli tech ecosystem. Now, what, what, what uh, you know, in a playground you have a swing and you have a slide and you have a carousel, so... What do you have in the Israeli tech ecosystem? How does my playground look like? So first thing, Israel um, has the highest density of startups in the world. Um, and the numbers now are about roughly 6,000, 7,000 Israeli startups and tech companies, which means there's, there's one startup for every 1,400 1, or 1,400 people. Okay? And... At scales, you may say 6,700, it's not that much, but proportionally, it's a lot. And, and that is a manifestation of the entrepreneurial spirit that exists in this country, translated into technology and business, because startups are business organizations. What, what's the difference between a startup and a regular business that's, okay. right, that's yeah. not a startup. So uh, there's actually no one clear definition or legal definition of a startup. Like a for a public traded company, you would have a legal definition, right? For a start- startup, you don't have that. But a startup typically is um, a business that relies in some way on technology, either uses or relies on technology, and that has a, a potential of growth which is higher than that business's ability to actually fund itself at the beginning. So if you were to open um, just, I don't know, uh, um, a commodity store, okay, you would probably take a loan or invest your money in it at the beginning, and then you will start, uh, um, um, you'll have revenues and you will grow accordingly. In startups, because of the reliance on technology, the growth potential is much much faster, okay, um, than the funds that the startup itself can actually generate, and that's why most startups are actually most of them are relying on external funding, on venture capital funding. In in Hebrew or in Israel, we we don't 
call it venture capital, we actually call it risk capital. Hon sikun. Hon sikun, yeah. Right? Because it's, it's much more risk, uh, uh, risky than investing in real estate or other, um, other things. So that was the first thing. Highest... Um, um, highest um, um, per capita. Per ca- highest, yes, uh, rate of startups per capita. The second thing is when it comes to... Okay, so but what type of entrepreneurship... Israel is rated very, very high in terms of innovation around the world. And innovation is usually measured according to the number of patents, the number of scientists, um, elements that can be measured to actually say, you know, to what extent a country is innovative. Surprisingly, Switzerland, for example, is in the top of these charts, which we, we would, I mean, most people would not think of Switzerland as a super innovative country. Why not? I don't know. When you think about Switzerland, what do you think about? Do you think about innovation? I th- no, I think about um, order, cleanliness, I don't know, banking, <laughs> you know. You don't, feel, you don't, I mean, innovation wouldn't be one of your top. Chocolate, that St. Bernard yes. with that whiskey on his neck. High, high quality polished yes, things. Hi, exactly, but you right. don't really think about no. innovation. And yet they're, ra- they're rated really, really high. Why? Because they are very innovative, Mo- or they were until recently, still are, in one main vertical, and that is the pharmaceutical. Mm. So for many, many years, Switzerland was the world leader in pharmaceutical innovation at such a magnitude that actually impacted the whole rating of Switzerland as an innovative country. Israel was, is rated lower than Switzerland in those ratings, But its innovation looks completely different because it's not focused on one industry, on one vertical. It's actually really spread over so many different fields, starting with cyber and agriculture um, and water, where you could say, oh, yes, because we, we have necessity. Right? So there was a need, and based right. on that, that Scarcity. need... Resources. Yes, in, in resources or in cyber, just a need to innovate. Yeah. And based on that, that need, a lot of innovation came out of Israel. But fintech, insurance tech, um, um, some, some uh, technologies around navigation systems and uh, Mobileye and uh, computer vision and many others that are not based on the market need In Israel, but are rather based on skills, on capabilities, mm. and the ability to actually transition, transform from one world, just like we do in intelligence work, yeah. to understand something in this world and to bring it to a completely different world. So innovation is very diversified here. Okay, That's already a second very critical element. And together with, like we said, a lot of entrepreneurship, now we have... A lot of tech entrepreneurship, which is actually innovative. But the third interesting thing is that Israel of 2021 attracts more venture capital per capita than proportionally, okay, per capita than any other country in the world. So foreign investors, professional investors, this is not philanthropy. These are not people who are... These are not, not Zionists. Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not, they're professional investors, and they have to choose where to put their dollars. <coughs> Many of them are looking at Israel, and that's their first choice. In tech in Israel. 
because for many years now it has yielded great returns. Mm. So that's a third element. That's the oxygen already that is kind of feeding this entire um, ecosystem. So you have high rates of entrepreneurship, great innovation in the diversity of um, verticals, and money, oxygen, okay, feeding that. And the results, and, and, uh, for, and, 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 and a lot of smaller elements that comprise that, uh, build that ecosystem, but great talent, and people with a lot of chutzpah, who are not afraid of dreaming big, who are not focusing their efforts on the Israeli market, but are actually you know, thinking big outside of Israel and wanting to bring their innovation, their ideas, their success globally. So all of that together mixed, and you have a super vibrant ecosystem here that attracts so many people from around the world um, to see what's happening here. And the only thing that we do not have here or not have enough is actually the market. I was going to say, it, it, it appears, and we were talking about this before the show, uh, it, it appears to me living here for, well, I guess almost 18 years, that uh, Israel is the startup nation, but sometimes it doesn't look like the startup nation. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like the startup nation when you're just driving around the streets or when you're going into a government office or where you're interacting yeah. with something that's not in the tech sector itself. True. Uh, and, and I think part of that probably has to be very much tied into the fact that we are a very small market that, uh, I mean, we're speaking in English on this show, but, but you know, the Hebrew language is spoken by what maybe like population of Israel and some Jews other places, but we're mm-hmm. not talking about, much, yeah. you know, there, there's, it's, there's not a big market here for anything. There's a tiny market. Uh, so by definition, if you want to succeed on, on, on a global scale in business, you're going to design a service or a product that's geared towards the international exactly. market uh, and, and not the local market. And, 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 and I guess I wonder, are, are we in Israel benefiting enough in your opinion, uh, from the high-tech ecosystem in Israel? Yeah, is it like it is something we've been talking about for a while? Because, I mean, I, uh, we mentioned, you know, I've been involved in UAE stuff, and I came back from Dubai, and I told Benny, what did I tell you? I said, I felt like I'm in 20 years in the future. Like, literally, like, I don't know if you, have you been? Not yet. You literally feel like you stepped into the future. Every single part, like, nothing feels... Uh, everything like the, the most high tech thing you can imagine, the most efficient, the most clear, just everything is is futuristic, and, and yeah, we say to ourselves, it's like the um, the shoemaker who goes who goes yeah. barefoot. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- why is it that in Israel we're not living in the future? Because if, if all this tech is here, because there is a. Um there's, there's a huge... So one of the reasons why the tech ecosystem, the tech economy has been so successful, one of the reasons is the lack of governmental interference in it. And because of the reasons we've mentioned about the market and for other reasons, but the fact that the government is not part or not, a, not does not play a major part in the tech ecosystem... Enabled this very free market, you know, jungle. Um, that's one of the reasons. And enabled creating very high standards, very again, top top, not just innovation, but but standards for companies. All Israelis companies in tech 
are their employment agreements are in English. Um, they're ready for due diligence on day one because they for them, Israel has the highest number of companies traded on Nasdaq in absolute numbers after the US and China. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? Yeah. Now why is that happening? Because for so many Israeli entrepreneurs, Nasdaq is not a science fiction you know idea. Their friends have founded companies that went public on Nasdaq. There, there's a best practice of doing that here. And they start their startups. Remember this guy we met on the elevator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay? So, he, and he just told us, have you heard the announcement? I started a new startup. Yeah. Without, go, without knowing exactly what the startup is about, I can tell you, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's a successful serial entrepreneur. He's starting a startup today that with the idea of maybe taking it public within X months or two years, three years, four years, five years, but from day one it will be managed in a corporate governance and standards ready for NASDAQ. Um, so the tech ecosystem has its own standards, which are really, really high. It's like a floating island. There's a whole debate in Israel, not just about... Um, the innovation itself and the use of that innovation in the Israeli market, which is what you've been talking about, how mm-hmm. it sees and feels. But for example, the proceeds, right, the fruits, most of the investors, like we said before, are non-Israelis. So when a startup is successful, when a tech company, an Israeli tech company is successful, the money's not staying most there. of the money is not staying in Israel. All of those multinationals, more than 400 multinationals operating in Israel, the Facebooks of the world, the Apples of the world, the Microsoft, the Intels, they are the larger, the largest employers in the Israeli tech ecosystem. They have R&D offices here in Israel, but the R&D developed for them is, it, is not for Israel. Is not for Israel, yeah. right? So you could argue, okay, so it doesn't stay in Israel. Yes and yes and yes and yes. And yet, It's, it's an ecosystem where you have to maintain these balances of all the different elements. They all feed each other. And there's huge value in having young software developers graduating from Ben-Gulion University or Tel Aviv University working for, for Google or for Apple doing that in Arcelia. They oh. don't have to go to the United States yeah, for that. Yeah, sure. It's huge. I mean, what, what did I read? 10% of... The people in Israel work in the tech sector or something like that? A little like that? less than 10%. But they're, how much of the income and how much, right? These are the biggest, unless you own 43%, I think, of the exports are, are due to the tech ecosystem. That's huge. Which is crazy. Right. Yes, so, I mean, exactly. I, guess, I guess if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying like even if it's not directly, you know, even if every government office is not... You know super futuristic and whatever a lot of people are making very nice salaries because of this and it kind of feeds into itself and 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 you know it's a great place of employment if you're Israeli right right and thinking about the future okay and the skills for the future so for Israelis it would be and for the Israeli economy it would be easier to prepare to the future than for other countries why because A, because we have more young, younger people. We said we have the highest birth rate, so we have a younger generation. Okay? B, because, that, because of the fact that the skills for the future are mostly f- soft skills. Knowledge is becoming a commodity. Right? Data uh, analytics is, is something that when I was in the military, 
people used to do. Today, of course, computers do. And as we make progress, right, we can't even understand the magnitude of that, yeah. right? With machine learning and artificial intelligence. But what, what would differentiate us human beings and the talent would be creativity and, and complex problem solving and disruption of existing structures and models. And that, these are skills that Israelis, and that connects us back to the beginning of the conversation, are native, native speakers at. So in a sense, I, I'm very optimistic about the future of the economy in, in Israel. By the way, and we've seen this year, Israel is doing relatively well, even with COVID crisis around the world, in terms of growth, relatively well. Um, I'm, oh, and the, maybe the, we talked a lot about necessity. So the tech ecosystem of Israel today has a shortage of about 15,000 engineers. Employers in general, employees, yeah. employees. So engineers mostly, but not only, okay? Tech-related um, positions. And due to political reasons, we were not that open to, regardless of COVID, due to political reasons, we're not that open to visas, right? We don't import right. people. Usually only um, low-skilled, low-skilled and, you know, and people. Very, and very, very limited on the, right. these visas anyways. So now we need to find a solution. Just like the military, when we spoke before about the screening process in the military, we need to find a solution because Israeli companies need more talent. And they want to stay in Israel. They want to do that. They don't want to go and work in, some of them also work in Ukraine and in India and in other places, but they prefer to work with Israelis. So they find solutions and they start training people. And I think that if we'll meet in five years from now, we'll see that it's not just 8.3, I think, percent of the working force that is in tech. The numbers will be higher. And in 10 years from now, they'll be much, much, much higher. Hmm. That, what about um, you know, something that was bothering you when you were talking about who participates in this? Well, I, I, was, I, I was maybe going to say that, or two things. I'll, I'll be for a second, and I don't know if this is exactly my opinion or if I'm just trying to be the annoying devil's advocate that sits here in the room. Or the so, not annoying devil's advocate. <laughs> devil's advocate usually is pretty annoying. I like devil's advocates. It was a good movie. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. It is. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems sometimes that there is, uh, well, first off, you know, Israel's a country of what, we're like 9 million people, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, whereas, and, and again, I have zero data to back this up. This is a feeling. This is not, and I'm, and I'm probably complete. I would love to be wrong. Okay. But it feels like there's a, a, a disparity between high paying, high tech jobs in Israel and everything else sometimes. And I'm wondering when you're in a large country like the United States, where there are many different professions that pay livable wages or, or high, pay, high wage jobs, including high tech in California or in, or in Austin, Texas, or wherever that is today. Uh, It seems maybe healthier than when you're in a country of nine million people and you have, you know, a, let's call it 10% for an even, an even round number that are making spectacular wages and the rest of the country is making a wage where it's very difficult to save anything for the future. That, that's number one. Uh, and number two, uh, you know, it, how equitable is it to, to you know, this sort of a, of a system or a, or a, I don't want to say hiring system because we didn't talk about hiring, but... Uh, the types of people that would be in high tech or that would be suitable for high tech coming from 
the military coming from a, a certain type of a childhood. How, how equitable is that to other sectors of Israeli society, be it ultra-Orthodox Arabs, uh, people that haven't gone to the military, mm-hmm. uh, people that don't have chutzpah naturally? Or people that live in the periphery, the socioeconomic periphery. So these are all, I think, r- correct insights, but they're not correctable in a short period of time. Right. So it's, ve- it's like, and let's take it for a second, let's focus on a part of that conversation, me being a woman, okay? We didn't gender, notice. <laughs> gender, gender diversity, an issue in Israel and, in, 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 and elsewhere in the world, right? Is it something that we can change within three, four, five years and immediately see the change? No, it takes time. So same here, there is a change. Ultra-Orthodox, if you would go to tech conferences te- 10 years ago, zero ultra-Orthodox present, zero, not one, zero. You, you would not see them. If you would go to a virtual tech conference now or a real tech conference a year ago in Israel, you'd see ultra-Orthodox investors and you will see ultra-Orthodox engineers and entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs. It's true. I go, I go every year, not last year, but I go every year to our crowd. Mm-hmm. And it's growing. It's bigger yeah. and bigger every year. And mm-hmm. if you haven't been and you're in Israel, you should definitely go because it's, it is uh, inspiring and shocking at the same time how many people are, are at this conference. But it's true. There are many, many people that are religious that are at that conference. There are Arabs that go to the conference. Exactly. So we start to see that change. And, and part of the change is connected to exactly what I said before, is out of necessity. Now, is it just, is it, is it fair that we had to wait till we had this shortage of talent <laughs> in the ecosystem? It's not fair. But am I happy that it's happening? Of course I am. So, so it is happening, though. You, it is. You it is happening with, happening with Arabs. I'm, I'm on the board of the 80 to 100 Alumni Association. We, um, in 2010, my first entrepreneurial um, activity that I created was the first accelerator in Israel, the first startup accelerator. And I created it as a nonprofit accelerator on behalf of the unit, on behalf of the Alumni Association, by the way, Ohad, whom we just saw in the elevator, that's how I know him. He participated with his first startup, um, I think, at the cohort of 2015, if I'm not <coughs> mistaken. A very successful cybersecurity startup. And 2010, we started the 8200 Entrepreneurship and Innovation Support Program, which was Startup Accelerator. Not just for 8200 grads. That's a long name for an accelerator. Yeah, it's, you know... You need an acronym. I w- EISP, yeah. It was a temporary name, but everything moved so quickly and that we didn't have the time to change it. And it became known in the industry, so we left it, 8200 EISP. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, the 8200 Alumni Association also started a an impact accelerator, okay? And a program called Hybrid, which is an accelerator for Israeli Arabs. And, the, and obviously they did not serve in 8200, but the idea is not who served or not in 8200. The idea is how do people who served in 8200, in this case, can actually bring give back to society. And we're good in fostering entrepreneurship. Here's a niche market that needs help. Let's help them. And how, so, how willing was that niche market able, you know, to how willing were they to engage with the accelerator? So we had to structure it in the right way 
so that they won't feel because there is a um, cultural issue there. Okay. Right, there's an innate tension probably. That yes, exists. so we had to, to, to structure it in the right way with the right partners, okay, um, without 8200 on the title. <laughs> uh, because the idea was to do good, of course, right? Um, and it's still, it's still up and running and it's a very successful one. What I'm trying to say here is that over the, the past, I think, seven years, we see more and more initiatives and more and more programs and projects for gender equality, for different... For diversity of different backgrounds, and the gaps are st for periphery in the periphery. Now, periphery Israel is a tiny country, yeah. okay. And I'm often asked, okay, but why don't we have investors in Be'er Sheva? Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's a tiny. It's a one-hour drive. So the investors are mostly in the center of Israel, and the startups come here and meet them. It's not. I mean, we all also have to remember that 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 periphery is a, a maximum two and a half hours drive from the center. These um, shifts are happening gradually, slowly. They cannot happen overnight, but they're definitely happening. Are they happening because of any government encouragement or despite lack of government encouragement? They're happening with some support of government um well, again, some of them, we, we, we spoke of different types. Sure, sure. So some of these efforts are also um, backed or supported by some government, I don't know, wind, mm -hmm. tailwind. However, I, I said before, the, the, one of the strengths of the, the tech ecosystem in Israel is its independence. Hands-off approach. Exactly, from the government. And so... The the chief of the 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 chief the the office of the um, chief scientist, scientist yeah. or they, they change they keep changing oh, the names I don't follow it's it's a strange name it's it's yeah. like you would expect him to be a scientist like the chief uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's like in his lab it's, yeah so, yeah, so Amadana Rashi what what they keep saying is that they follow what the industry needs okay okay so they don't define the direction or the problems, but they would actually follow what the industry needs, which makes a lot smart. of sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that's smart because it's going to, uh, private sector is always going to move faster than exactly. government. There, there's, unless you, you know, I guess there's not much you can do about that. I, I mean, I didn't want to say it at the beginning because it, it's very much on the nose, but since we talked about it, I mean, obviously you're a woman, but you're from the periphery, right? Originally. Originally yes. from the periphery. You grew up in the periphery. You come from a, at least a part Mizrahi household. Half right, so I mean, you're you're exactly the success story that. Yes, but but yes, I, I didn't even want to come out and say it just because it's like so obvious. But it's like yes, yes, you could say that. Although, again, in my you know Israeli identity, I'm just Israeli. You're just Israeli, and and I think the more we can get to, and I, I think we are. I mean, in so many things, we're. Um, I, I, told, I told you before, I work at a, a Jewish World Think Tank, and we're today we're presenting our Pluralism Index. We have a yearly. Pluralism index, and it's kind of one of these trends you see. Is like, okay, we're just becoming more Israeli, you know, over the yeah. years, unless different groups um, choose to actually elevate. Who choose? Yeah, yeah. And, and some groups, you know, like the ultra orthodox parts of them, want to be separate. Mm -hmm. But um, overall, you see that greater trend towards integration. And I think, I think the the more we can just get to that point where we don't even have to think or talk about it, I think it, it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, at least in a lot of ways. Um, so what, what are some of the startups that you said you were serial entrepreneur? So is a serial entrepreneur, 
that you're really good at the whole process of a startup? Is that what that means? It, well, it means from a factual basis that I've um, initiated several entrepreneurial initiatives, okay? Um, some of which were startups um, and others were like this accelerator. So it's, it's the accelerator just celebrated, celebrated its 11th year but it's it's an entrepreneurial v sure. activity, you know, um, that I started ten years ago. Um, so um, in my case, it's a variety of elements. So um, vehicles that support entrepreneurship is one thing that I'm very interested in and and strong at creating these structures. It could be through an accelerator. It could be through a fund. Um, that I that I started and 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 f- with co-founded with a partner, and, and and invested from so and it could be in a, um, a tech incubator that I had 2013, from which startups like like a platform for innovation, okay, but not a not a governmental incubator, or companies like Synthesis, my own company. Yeah, so which what, is, is, what is that? What do you do? So Synthesis is a leadership assessment company. We provide leadership assessment. So we focus on uh, the psychological buildup of C-level and top executives. We work mostly in North America, uh, but our brains, if you want, is, is Israeli. And um, we've developed a methodology of assessment with former psychologists from the Israeli military that work with us, um, that is based on narrative psychology, um, and we is actually reducing biases, cultural biases and, and diversity biases um, and, and additional biases. And we're capable from here in Israel in a very efficient way to actually assess, again, C-level top executives um, in a variety of industries mm. in North America. So if my board comes to me and says, look, Dan's our CEO, but we're not so sure about him mm-hmm. and how he's going to take us to the next level. Yes, exactly. They'll come to you and they'll say... Please assess Dan. Please assess Dan. Please don't. <laughs> Please do, actually. That could be fun. <laughs> so we would assess Dan and we would focus our assessment on his on your leadership capabilities in the context of business, of course. And we would also tell them, yes, we will gladly assess Dan, but we also suggest to assess the chairman of the board who works closely with Dan or to assess the entire C-suite, not just Dan, one including, individual. Including everybody. All the directors. Even the person who approached you to say. Yes. we us- So when we work with a level of board of directors, it's usually the entire board. Um, or it could be, I, Dan, am the CEO of a company and I want to assess my C-suite, my executive team, and I like working with them. I think they're great. I just want to know how to work better with them, mm-hmm. how to work better as a team. And so we would assess each individual, but we would also provide a view on the team itself. Uh, we are brought in cases of hiring decisions, okay, screening processes and hiring decisions of, again, top um, um, business leaders. We're brought in times of growth, actually, just like in the example that you've mentioned, we're uh, brought a lot in term, uh, in cases of um, private equity and funds that are interested in due diligencing the leadership capabilities, the leadership potential of the existing teams of uh, the companies and in M&A um, cases. Is there, is there a tech Very aspect cool. to this? Great question. Yes, there is. Um, so 
since we're based on narrative psychology, which is text, which is words, right? Uh, a story you're telling me, actually, or you're not telling me, you're telling someone on okay, the computer. Um, so there is um, an element, a layer of natural language processing and uh, machine learning there that we actually, in the premium, okay, in the C-level executives, we don't use. We have real psychologists assessing them. But we are now using that data and that information and those insights into actually, you know, creating a slimmer version for lower levels of, of leadership and at scale. That's interesting. That's Is this something that could also be adapted to, to non-management scenarios as well? Oh, it's, it's actually, it could be, it's, it's a go-to-market strategy. So okay. the assessment itself that we do and our assessment tool that we've created is relevant to any human being at any age everywhere in the world. Do you think, I mean, this is a, a wild question, but do you think that it would be interesting if you would do this sort of an assessment to, let's say, governments? It would, all, it would be interesting to do it. Administrations and, and to anyone. Knesset in Israel or? <laughs> <laughs> Which Knesset? <laughs> it's interesting, though, because it, it's, it's it, look, this is something that's kind of off, off topic, but it's like, we're in the you know the quote unquote startup nation, and then when you're in Tel Aviv and you're interviewing in Balagheli, you're you're clearly in the startup nation, and then you have the government of the startup nation, which is clearly like living in some sort of different age, um, <laughs> it seems. And is it frustrating for the for people that work in tech in Israel that some of that tech some of that talent is not carried over to public administration? So we see more and more of that talent. Um, our former uh, minister of science, Izal Shai, yeah. is uh, a, a colleague, a friend from the industry. Naftali uh, Bennett. Bennett, yeah. Exactly. yeah Errela Margalit tried, tried a political career, didn't work so and well. Barkat, and Nir Barkat also himself, true. Yeah, also yeah. before him being the mayor of Jerusalem. He was, he's part of BRM, a very successful um, investment fund. So we see more and more of these people just, you know, saying... I have to. Good. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And, and clearly it's talent, it's proven leadership, it's not just someone who... By the way, I mean, we tend to discount this, but politics, you know, people who started out in student union and, and went up through local politics, that's also a profession and a skill that we we tend to uh, look down upon. But oh, I 100%. Think, you know, when you know how to navigate this complex political system... Um, that that's also a skill, and, and there's a reason why a lot of the people have been in politics for so long, have been there for so long. It's because they can do that. Um, I, I want to kind of jump into um, you. If I understood correctly, you connected stages of childhood with the stages of a startup, and we talked about being a serial entrepreneur. Can you explain that to us and kind of connect it for us? Yes. So a startup, typically, I mean, one could look at a startup through uh, five different stages. Okay. So it, it always starts with exploring something. Many Israeli entrepreneurs mistake and think that you're exploring a solution, whereas you're mostly supposed to explore a need, a problem. That's where you're supposed to start. Okay? And, and that, that stage is a stage which is very, uh, feels very uncomfortable because there's not much to do. You're just supposed to explore and not jump jump to conclusions and jump to, you know, tachlis, doing, which we Israelis really like. 
Yeah, get, get to the tachlis. Get yeah, to the bottom point. Yeah, get to point. the tachlis and solve something. We're good solvers, right? But at that stage of exploration, it's all about asking a lot of questions and uh, asking questions and not um, taking anything for granted. Okay, because if you if you if you just take the reality as granted and and believe in what's happening just in front of you, then then the chances of innovating are really, really low. Right, and that's why you, you have complacency, I guess, right? And, okay, this is how it is, it's fine. Yeah, right. So, no, so it's all about looking at the reality, at a problem, and, and, and asking all the why, 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 and trying to understand what's, what's happening there. So that's the first stage. Second stage of a startup is the validation, where you're supposed to, and here, actually... Oh, but it's in Korean. <laughs> we, we all know Korean. Yeah, no yeah. problem. No, no, no. But here they have it. You see, so the Koreans actually they, they on the book they, oh, they really like. Yeah, they have it in English. They really like. But they called exploration discovery. Oh, we'll okay. take it. Oh, I see. But they, and then they mixed the order. But that's their creative way of. Uh, <laughs> so from discovery and exploration, you're supposed to go to validation. Okay. okay where you're validating your understanding of what you've explored. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that you're checking your assumptions with reality now. Got it. You, you've reached conclusions, but, and now you need to face reality and check. Okay? Are my conclusions right? Are my assumptions, my hypothesis about this problem, is it, real, is it just a problem that I have, that I encounter? Is it a big enough problem that would interest other people? Um, is it a big enough dream? Okay? So, so that's the validation process. Then after you've validated both the problem and most probably already the, the beginning of the solution, because the better you understand the problem, it, the better you understand a problem, the easier it is to find a solution. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but if you really understand a problem very well, then you're like 90% advanced to make to find the solution to the problem, right? Right. So after we validate it, it's all about efficiency and it's about fine-tuning and making sure an optimization of everything you've explored, you've found, and you've validated. From there, you actually grow, okay? That's the scale. You're efficient now. You have an engine working and everything is smooth and operating well. Now you can actually grow and grow so and grow. So in investment comes somewhere between validation and efficiency? Well, investment can come at any of... Investment comes at all of these stages at different size. Okay. Okay, and with different investors. Um, and then after that scalable phase, you know how you need to renew. And we're sitting at WeWork, but just think that, what, four years ago, at the beginning, WeWork was just about offices, Right, and then they came with "We Live," right? So that's what's, what's that? "We Live" was an is an idea that they and they still have that in the U.S. in New York of a community living. So they took buildings where you have a, your you have your apartment and you have a small kitchen in the apartment, but you also have a super you know a nice foyer with a live a, a huge living room well, together, shared. which is shared. So you have your own apartment, but you also have the benefits of living in a, in a kibbutz. Yeah. Okay, kind of. Is it successful? Is it taking off? Well, 
you know, nothing about WeWork is really clear, so I don't know. Okay. So there's a fascinating, I'll give them a quick plug. There's a fascinating podcast that I've been listening to called, uh, I think it's called Living, Living with Giants. Uh, here, I'll find it real quick. But they, they do a deep dive into WeWork and its origin stories with Adam Neumann and how many of the ideas for the WeWork concept came out of the kibbutz. And he was from, I believe it was Kfar Aza or some, somewhere in, in, in the Gaza perimeter. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Kibbutz Erez maybe. Okay. Uh, but he essentially was saying like, there were communal resources that were shared and how can we bring that into the office mm-hmm. environment? And, and that's probably yeah. very suitable for millennials. Well, you see, you see, it's definitely a millennial trade and you mm-hmm. see that in, you know, Uber, what's yeah. Uber? Like, why do we need a car? We can just share cars. Right. And, and that whole kind of shared economy concept mm-hmm. is, um, I think that's something that definitely differentiates kind of the millennial generation from, from maybe previous ones. So, uh, that's an interesting one. I was always, fa- every time I come into a WeWork, I'm always fascinated by this concept. I'm like, yeah, this makes so much more sense than, you know, everyone having their own yeah. building and everyone, I work in a office building that's just empty most of the time and spending a lot of money on and mm-hmm. Tons of money. And, and in fact, money. I mean, and not to sound cliche, everybody talks about, you know, how, how COVID is changing the way that we're working. Um, on the one hand, you, you almost see that it's in, inevitable that we're going to come back to something that looked different than what we left. And on the other hand, it seems to me, often counterintuitive that we could maintain the same sort of synergy that's required to have constructive creative processes if we're all working from home separately and isolated. And I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, people would say, you know, this is going to change the world. No one's going to go to work. We're going to do everything remotely. You're going to live at home. And, 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 and I think there was a net feeling of positivity towards it at the time because people were like, well, home's kind of like a vacation. Mm -hmm. And now you're just like, if I have to see home one more day, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my mind. Uh, and I and I think there's a lot to that in that you do need to have physical interaction with other people to have a creative process that's as efficient as as, yeah. as it can be. Well, we are social animals, right? You know, but I think the example of WeWork and 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 what you've just said connects very well to the concept of flexibility, which is, by the way, part of the Israeli mindset and. Maybe the best example is actually our reaction as a country to COVID. You can't say that all the decisions which were made were the right ones. And at some points it felt like, you know, madhouse when you, still is, yeah. right? Our kids go to school and we don't really know what's happening like next week. Yeah. Or And, and, and our, our wives are teachers. teachers. Okay. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. They literally don't know. They don't know. Happening. Exactly. But that she got it. She got a text last night at ten thirty saying the entire schedule for tomorrow is going to be changed. That's exactly. happened several times, by the way. Yes, and it and it sounds crazy, but when you think of it, it it has so much opportunity in it because it's really flexible and elastic, and and it it's like if it, you have proper management behind it that understands to be able to be flexible and well, the, which is often a, the, an issue. the beauty of the Israeli education system is not necessarily the minister of education, whomever that has been in the past, what, 10 years, and not necessarily even the principals of the schools, the directors of the schools, but it is the teachers. teachers. And they are responsible enough and they are creative enough. And yes, it can, it really can drive a person crazy, (laughs) but it, it also enables much more, again, optimization in a sense. Okay. Well, you, you just published an article, I think, in Forbes, right? 
um, about how COVID is forcing us all to deal with ambiguity and, and how do you make... And uncertainty. Uncertainty. How do you make decisions with minimal information in a, in a time of uncertainty? And, and, you know, we call this also nimbleness maybe, right? This is, uh, uh, um, I guess, something that definitely defines Israeli society. I remember, um, maybe you had this, I remember in, in the military, we'd have meetings with, uh, cooperation meetings uh, with other armies specifically. I worked a lot with the Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we always talk about America as like a battleship, like an aircraft carrier. It's incredibly powerful, but the second they have to make decisions and change and adapt to reality, Doesn't it, turn too quickly. it takes them a while. And, and with Israel, you know, it's like th- there's advantages and disadvantages to that. A- and it is part of our culture that maybe because things don't work so smoothly here and because the region's so chaotic, we're always kind of having to adapt. Correct. And we're not. Feet. Yes, exactly. And from a very young age, by the way. And so we're not, we're less at fear from from changing circumstances and from taking decisions and changing them and readapting and that agile mindset has become in my view really to our advantage uh, not just in covid but also again looking at the future and the world today understands that the only certain thing is is uncertainty yeah. and the the more familiar you are with coping with uncertainty It, it takes training. It, it requires practicing. But the more familiar your muscles are with uncertainty, the better you react to it. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe out of that kind of environment is where innovation and creativity come from, right? And adaptivity and, again, optimization of things in small steps. It's all about these... Short iterations where you correct and adapt and correct and adapt and correct and you make mistakes, but it's okay because the price of a mistake is not that huge. Do you, we're often talked about, um, you know, a startup nation, startup nation, startup nation, startup nation. And the classic Israeli startup story is get to a point where you can make an exit and sell it to some international firm. Are we getting better as a society and also The next phase of running the companies and scaling them or is it still well start up and exit so we, we going back to data we Israel has today the highest number of unicorns per capita unicorns being private companies valued at over one billion dollars <laughs> a, a crazy insane number of I think above 40 or 46 unicorns yeah, that's that's not crazy so. um, and we have a long list of I think at least seven or eight companies that went public only in the past three months, okay, um, on NASDAQ, um, th- given through new uh, financial vehicles. Um, but we are already, that's the present. So It's already the, there. We're that's already crazy. there. There are, there are already big companies in Israel, the Lemonades, the Wixes, the Fivers, They're multi-billion dollar companies managed from Israel by Israelis. They have offices in the States, most of them, or elsewhere in the sure. world. But their core activities, their core management is here. And the story of startup, only startup nation, that's history already. Yeah, that's, it's, it's crazy to think about it, but it's true, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, they have matured. They have matured and they have grown as executives, as business leaders, to also maintain... That growth. I'll ask a, a very strange, very weird type question. 
there, there are people behind those sorts of unicorn stories that are Israelis that have become exorbitantly wealthy very quickly. How does the Israeli mentality or psychology here, how do they, how do they deal with that? Like, are they... What do you mean? Meaning, okay, so like, you know, like in America or in English, there's this concept of like nouveau riche behavior. Sure. Is, is that what happens here? Is it, you they go on a like lot? a... Do you no, no, you don't. You, you don't, don't see. I mean, you. You know, uh, you know where you do see it though. Not with the tech crowd. Yeah, not with the tech no, crowd. You would see it with maybe diamonds or yeah. real estate. And yeah, real estate. And, uh, and the re- uh, and and few reasons for that. One, uh, I mean, you don't see a lot of. Uh, I don't know the, the the status symbols are not really that meaningful here because, in a sense, for good and for bad, sometimes it's not a, an advantage. It's less about the packaging, it's always about the essence. So with startups, by the way, Israeli entrepreneurs, they have a very hard time in marketing because they're not that good at packaging a story, at storytelling. And uh, not just they're not that good, but also they, they put less emphasis on the story because what matters is the it's essence, the essence sure. right? It's what we do. Uh, forget the fact that we don't, we can't even tell what we're doing, <laughs> but what we do is great. And uh, what, can't you see that, right? Right. They, they like a female mom. How do you say that? Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, look, I used to, I used to go um, because of my English and my American background. I was always, you know, at least in the army, I was always the one presenting. I was always the one kind of. At that part, and they would call you out like, oh, "Let's get Dan. He's got it." No, no, I loved it too because it was something that I could contribute mm-hmm. that was unique. But I remember going to the states or to Europe with my colleagues who, and and they didn't know how to wear a tie. Like they they didn't know how to like you know wear a fitting a, a proper fitting suit and all these things. And I was like, "Come on, these are like brilliant people." And it's like it's it's one of these kind of things yeah. that you're talking about. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious. In two questions on that. One, every everything has its status symbols every culture has its status symbols so if the i don't know the range rover and the fancy suits is not a status so symbol what is in the israeli tech economy what are the status symbols founding a new startup starting a new startup and succeeding that's in the tech ecosystem that would be your status uh, symbol it's about it, and and the next time Bigger, stronger, and for better for a better cause. Okay. Is there an Achilles heel? Is there like one thing like people go on ridiculous vacations and then, then people not compare? Really. There's n- like everyone's very Sanua, very modest it's about a, it. Yes, but it's not because they're they're. It's not a uh, you know they're Sanua because of a spiritual Mo- you modest. know modest yeah. uh, because of a spiritual belief that it's because I mean when you live in Israel I mean how big can your house be? Okay, you can't have a mansion here everywhere in Tel Aviv. It's it's uh, you have a p- nice penthouse maybe. Yeah, okay. okay. But and then your kids go to public school with all the other kids, right? Right. I mean, and then you go to the military or you go to a mm. restaurant with all the the. It's such a close community or society that th- those external symbols are less less meaningful it, here. They're less meaningful. Even yeah. it's even more than that. People are cynical about it. I think I think it is true to an extent, and you know we've talked about this. It's like I live in a neighborhood that if you were to just drive through, it's okay. It's a nice middle class Israeli neighborhood. The amount of PhDs, the amount mm-hmm. of incredibly successful people, high tech world. I live in Rehovot. Mm-hmm. There's the big high tech part. Yeah. You wouldn't know it from looking at the apartments in it, and your neighbors are maybe a cab driver or maybe you know people who are more. 
Yeah. It's called simple people. And, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's interesting here because if you live in America, it's like, okay, you live in a very wealthy suburb and it's a very clear that it's a wealthy suburb. And your and kids go to the, the school, cars, the private school. Yeah. yeah. Here you don't, you don't really no. have that differenti- differentiation. Um, I guess that leads to a different kind of mentality. Um, but it's true. The startup, the successful startup entrepreneurs I know also, okay, maybe their clothes are newer, but again, they're not rocking like super fancy things. They're not driving a significantly fancier car than someone else. It, it, that, that's interesting. It's an interesting thing to point out, I guess, mm. in that sense. Um, how, how close, is, have you seen um, the, it was on Showtime, Silicon HBO, Valley? HBO, yeah. HBO Silicon course, Valley? yeah. How, how, is that mirrored in Israel in any way? Could we make our own Israeli Silicon Valley show? Totally. <laughs> Such a funny show. Of course you could. You know, um, call it, I don't know, Rothschild Boulevard or Herzliya Pituach or... Yeah, right? Yeah, you could. Somebody should do it. I, it's, it seems interesting. I mean, we're, we're, we're in such a globalized world. I know one of the things that you're, that you're involved with is... Um, Dan's circling something before I get... Well, it's that. just an interesting question that you were... Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, about. I, what I wanted to ask is, is, how do you explain Israeli culture to companies abroad that might find themselves working with, with Israelis? Uh, is, it, is it easy for them... Is it, diff- is it a challenge? It's, it's always a challenge for both sides, by the way, because you have to, so for the non-Israeli side and for the Israeli, and by the way, the challenges are different from one culture to the other. So working um, for, again, and we're just speaking in generalities, of, yeah, course, of course, here, okay? But for uh, a German company to work with Israelis, there would be some challenges. And for an Asian company, uh, a Japanese country, uh, company to work with an Israeli startup, there would be other challenges. And by the way, for my U.S. partners, Synthesis is a company I co-founded with partners in the U.S., non-Jewish, not connected to Israel in any way, we've had our challenges as well. And, 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 there, like, and like they're what? different. Like what? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a real story, um, which I think really tells the show's some of the the differences. So we were on this, one of our first strategic meetings, okay? We were already working together. So we found, we co-founded the company and it was like the early days of synthesis. Um, And we, and the the meeting was a strategic conversation about the go-to-market strategy or something like that. I don't, don't remember the details. And we were two Americans in the room and two Israelis four of us holding a very, a, a meeting about things which are really important. Okay. At the end of the conversation, in English, of course, so not speaking Hebrew between us, and uh, all the conversation was in English, all the meeting was in English. Coming out of the meeting, one of my uh, American partners like took me to the side and he asked me, why were you, and her, like uh, another person who was with us, why were you kind of, arguing all the time and you disagreed on everything and it, it felt like you were almost fighting like we only started this company and i'm like what are you talking about <laughs> and he's like and everything you said she said the opposite everything she said you said the opposite and i said yes we were brainstorming it was a great conversation <laughs> and i realized and, and and it took us a minute to understand that in his eyes there was huge conflict there. We were arguing. We were about to break the company, the partnership. In my eyes, this was a great conversation 
because we entered the conversation with one idea, we left the conversation with three new directions and agreements, which were much better than the ones we entered with. And it was a great brainstorming session. And, and I remember me telling him, listen, have you ever seen a, a pleasant storm? Isn't brainstorming all about creating a storm of ideas? Of, and, and yes, everything she said, I said the opposite so we could, again, optimize, we could improve right. the, the, the solution. And well, from that moment on, we understood each other. But at that moment, he felt uncomfortable. And he, sure. he needed that translation, and I needed his view to understand that it felt not that fun to him. Uh, I was, you and I have that happen to each, each other. Sometimes. I mean, Israel, sometimes maybe it rubs off on you when you're here for a long totally. enough time. You and I even, I mean, maybe people will be interested to hear it, and we'll have brainstorming conversations for how we are on the show or how our approach might be towards questioning guests or a creative process or whatever it might be which can become heated between us. Yeah. And, and some of them get into like very personal things like you're this way or you're, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's like we're analyzing each other yeah. psychologically, like, psychologically analyzing each other. And to people in, if like my sister in the States were to hear that conversation or if, or if your friends growing up in the States were to hear those conversations, they would think like, wait, these are friendship ending claims that you're making about oh, one another. We're trying it, to we're, optimize, right? But it's understood dynamic, right. but, and, and, and you're trying to optimize the dynamic. And, but in America... Perhaps that type of a conversation would be few and far between because the level of trust I don't know. for them. But that's the key. That's exactly what you said. The, the, the word, the key is trust. If these conversations are held on you know, solid foundings of trust, then it's fine. And not just fine, it's, it's even more than fine. It's actually, it's, it's making a progress through these conversations. Right. But you need to have trust. And I think one of the interesting things that Israelis have, generally speaking, with each other. It's trust. Is trust, uh, like uh, 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 a genuine, we, we, you start a conversation with trust. Yeah. And, and to your question, what is the challenges, if there are challenges? Yes, there are, always, with working with other cultures. Um, what I try to do is set expectations in advance. Now, try, and, and by the way, that's exactly what the book does. That's exactly what all these words in the book do, is they, they, they present a mindset. For example, dugri. Okay? Yeah, or do tachas. Like I don't want to say everything. I want our, our, our listeners to go and you know, read the book and, and find some more, you know. So, yeah, uh, what, what are the keywords they should be looking up? Let's go through them. So definitely balagan. It's a great Hebrew word for any of our listeners who don't know Hebrew. Balagan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tachles and dugri. A lot of these are from Arabic also. Well, some. Half yeah. and half. Yeah. Balagan is not from Arabic. Um, tachles is from Yiddish. Tachlis is, is from Yiddish? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's actually in German. In German people understand the word tachles. Okay, because it went into their language. So they Balag Balagan sounds Turkish almost. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Balagan is Turkish. Turkish and Russian then. And, okay. And, um, Balagan. Balagan, yes. It meant the balcony where you used to put all the... Well, I don't want to say... No. <laughs> read the book. Uh, read, read the book. Balagan, Tachles, Dugri, Lizrom. Go with the flow. Go with the flow, but it, the meaning is it's not to go with the flow. It's to create the flow. Huh. 
Uh, okay, so you go with the flow and you adapt, but you actually, you create the flow. Hmm. And my favorite... But Lisrom is also to deal very well with ambiguity. Yes, and exactly, to yeah. adapt, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Balagan. And Balagan. Shiftur. That's a good one. Doesn't exist in any military organization in the world. The concept of taking... Improvise well, a device... Equipment, military equipment, self-customize it even to your own needs. It's like... Customize it on the spot to your needs, right? Exactly. Military standard equipment, unheard of, right? Right. But it's a concept. It's a mindset. It's not just happening in the military. It would happen everywhere. And and then my favorite... You know what? I'll keep my... Well, okay. I have two more. One I'll keep to the end of the uh, session. Um, And um, Firgun does not exist in any other language that I've found. Part of the beauty of, you know, all these languages for me is actually that the dictionary, which is in the book, uh-huh. and that all the words that are incorporated in the stories in the book are now translated into all these languages. And I get to see how different cultures look at these concepts That's because awesome. it's not just the word and its translation. It's the concept behind it, the right. mindset. Um, and it's fascinating to see how in different cultures and languages. So, I mean, how it, it, in cultures that are more deferential, in cultures, like you said, the, the Americans are watching you and your other your Israeli partner, uh, quote unquote, fighting, but you weren't fighting, you were just, you know, um, in cultures where that's not acceptable, in cultures where that's crossing lines, like cultures, Japan, for example, yeah. with a hierarchy with the boss. Or, or yeah, cultures with a huge hierarchy, right? And and in Israel, in Israel you know, anyone who's ever seen our military or <laughs> knows that it almost doesn't exist. The re- yeah, the real miracle of Israel is that it, it, it works. How do it you, works well. How Very do you, well. How do you teach chutzpah mm-hmm. and how do you teach all of these lessons in cultures where it's really foreign concepts to them? So first, you don't... You're humble. You don't assume that your your way is the right way. And that's 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 my starting point. And I have a lot of respect to each and every one of these cultures. They've achieved a lot throughout history. Um, and and it's not about changing them. So that's that's the first thing. Now, on top of that, it's presenting mindsets and Offering them, it's like, you know, in math, you have this concept of weighted average where you have sure. the same elements in the formula, but the, the solution, the result changes based on the weighted average, right? right? So it's the polling same data, they do that all, right? Yes. So it's the same thing. It's understanding that wherever you are in the world today, looking at the future, we human beings will need to train these skills that are less about knowledge and they're less, they're less teachable in how we use to learn and teach and they're more about practice. Now, what, what is the right formula? It varies from one culture to another, but it also varies from one organization to another. What's right for an early stage startup is not what a growth company needs is not what a huge bank needs. So it's showing how you could actually take these components, take these elements, 
and play around them and find your own formula. And part of the, the work here is understanding that there is no size one that fits all. There is no formula, exact formula that I can, you know, it's not a, a, a how-to book with a clear uh, formula that you can actually take, practice, and here's the solution. It requires a lot of work and adaptivity to your own needs, to your own environment, to your own resources. And that's how I approached it. And once you do it this way, then the barriers, they actually fall. Because people understand you're not coming to tell, you're not telling them you do, you or Israel does better than them and has the answers. No. It's about just showing, and this is why the examples of all the anecdotes about kids in the book, although it's a business book, work so well. Because no matter where you live, no matter what you do, no matter how successful you are or not, the one thing which is common to everyone is that they've always been kids. So it's easier to relate to that through the eyes of children. Right. And, and one thing that we haven't mentioned is, is what, I mean, what do kids do all the time? How do you, how do you grow up? How do you mature? You, you, you fail a lot and you learn from your mistakes mm -hmm. and you adapt and you optimize and you try again. And I think that if there's anything here in Israel that is, uh, that is great is that, is that we are not afraid as, as some cultures and countries may be of failures. In fact, many times we even can celebrate them and we can see the humor in them and we can see that it's okay and, 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 it, and we can talk about them openly. I think that there was, I forget what it's called, but there's, a, there's like a series where people that are like prominent business leaders or, or scientists go around to bars and they talk about mm. their like failures. Mm. I think it's called, they call it like fuck or something like. Fuck up nights. Yeah, fuck up nights. <laughs> and, and it's really great. If you haven't gone, you should no, definitely go. You can like go here like, like some like ridiculously smart person talk about how he messed something up and how he learned from it. But it's, it's, it's very cool. Um, and I don't know if yeah. that's something that you could do if you were like in Japan, salary men type business culture where you yeah, could yeah, just yeah. go out and talk about how you messed something up big time and, mm. and you're going to take credit for it. Um, it, it it's really cool. I, I think that um, the question that, that Dan wants me to get into, I had this, this thought it's beforehand. Your but question. It's my question, but I may have been, it may have been answered uh, throughout this. But, you know, it seems like we're... We, we are this country that's, whose successes are built on its chutzpah in, 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 in many ways. Um, and chutzpah obviously isn't something that everyone can be or that everyone can do, try as, try <laughs> or, as we or might. Or that everyone has. Or that everyone has. Uh, especially immigrant cultures that come in and move to Israel. And, and we see this often. I mean, North Americans that come here have a very difficult time adapting to a culture of pushing yourself ahead of other people because it seems very blunt and very brunt at, at times. Uh, and and it and it seems like there's this if there's a pole that goes through Israeli the Israeli psyche on on one hand you have chutzpah and on the other Auda side audacity right? audacity and on the other side of it you have the friar okay mm. and like there's nothing worse in Israel than being a friar, friar like that's you avoided all sucker, costs right? you a see it, you see it in business you see it in driving culture you see it in the way people are at the grocery store like and you've definitely seen it in the past year with how you know we've we've dealt with COVID. Uh, and and it seems like um, is that accurate? Like, is it is that a fair assessment of of this country? That people don't like to be suckers. Or Sorry for my no, like. No. Well, yeah, but I think that again, you're so 
עולים חדשים, New Immigrants to Israel, in my eyes, they have a lot of חוצפה. Not in being rude, but in making, in taking a brave decision and, and facing uncertainty and completely changing their lives. So in my view, they have that. They, they already, they have these, that, these elements in their toolbox. Maybe they're not aware of them. Maybe they're not... giving you know them th- those traits like freedom on a day-to-day basis but the fact that you moved your life from one place to the other with a lot of uncertainty in it and decided to build a family in Israel or in any by the way all immigrants around the world by the way Im- immigrants are pockets of entrepreneurship yeah very not much just so. in Israel everywhere in the world because the The screening process is already one that brings those who are not afraid of trying or have no other choice. And so they do, and they do, and they do. So, and something that we talked about at the very beginning, yeah, yes, it's those people who are motivated enough for whatever reason to get up and literally go somewhere else, but it's, it's also they have that outsider perspective, which mm-hmm. I think is mm-hmm. to some extent crucial to be able to look at something and say, what's missing? Okay, this is what I'm going to bring because you land in a yes. new place and... You can't always just get a job at right. know, the company. Or how can I do it differently? How can I do it differently, right? right. So you are automatically coming in with a lens of what's missing that I see that I can fill, right? And, and I know it, I, it's true and I'm not, you know, I'm not being blind to the fact that being a, a new immigrant to Israel is sometimes overwhelming. But I also think that, And history has shown that modern history or recent history has shown that in Israel that you can actually totally be incorporated into economy here in Israel. If only, by the way, you choose not to isolate yourself. And there's, there's an, an incredible organization called Gvahim, which is yeah. a non-profit organization that tries to help new immigrants in Israel with their careers. And they've once told me uh, um, statistics about the success rate of new immigrants to educated new immigrants to Israel. And apparently those who have decided to, with all the difficulties that it brings, to open themselves to the Israeli economy, they have much more chances to succeed and to stay in Israel versus those that have, continued before pre-COVID days to work at, at home mm-hmm. with France or, you know, with their past networks. Yeah. So it requires a lot of effort, um, but it's possible. Definitely. Uh, maybe to wrap up, could you give us some examples for our listeners of some of your favorite Israeli startups and maybe some sort of wow experience uh, sort of technologies that are coming out of Israel which which uh, which stand out okay um, well, maybe if you want to feel good you know oh, totally. yeah of course of course of course that's what I'm I'm, I'm trying now <laughs> to build the right mosaic yeah. so by the way speaking of mosaics um, I started three years ago on set on the 17th um, Independence Day of Israel I started a project called the founder studio it's online and can check it it's called the founderstudio.com we'll have that in our show notes perfect because actually 
literally like in two days I'm, I'm publishing the version for this Independence Day and what it has is a mosaic of top um, role models from the Israeli tech ecosystem. Entrepreneurs, innovators, researchers, investors, executives, all types and all backgrounds and all, you know, uh, um, and I've asked them all 12 personal questions, identical questions. Um, and it's actually fascinating to see their answers. Are you doing the psych test on them secretly? No, I'm not. No, the, no, no, I'm not because they're not paying for it. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's, it's really for, for people who are interested in better understanding uh, Israeliness it's a, in tech, um, it's, a, it's a great place. Um, and so here, okay, one, um, a company I just love, and I think what they've, coming out of Israel is the, the most fascinating part in their work. It's not necessarily the technology itself, it's Fiverr, uh, the marketplace for professionals um, that has completely changed, right, the way uh, professional services uh, of different types is actually provided. Um, for many years, people didn't know it was even an Israeli company, yeah, even I, in Israel. I didn't know. Uh, when I first started working with Fiverr, I had no idea. It was, I assumed it was Indian or something. You know? <laughs> so it's an Israeli company. Actually, Micha Kaufman, their founder, has its birthday, his birthday today. Um, and I think, what, and, and it's a huge company already. It's, pu it's publicly traded on NASDAQ, FVRR for those interested. Um, and um, I think, again, it's, there it's not about the technology. It's about foreseeing the future in a way when they started Fiverr some 10 years ago or so, foreseeing the future, understanding trends completely regardless of the Israeli market, because obviously the gig economy back then in Israel was, was tiny and not relevant, and they beca became this market leader. And that's um, the hub of the gig economy, the exactly. global gig economy, right? Exactly. And th this past year has, of course, sure. uh, uh, made a an even greater impact over there is uh, because of, of people working from it. So that's one example. Um, I'll go in a completely different direction and I'll uh, mention um, Mobili, but not just Mobili, but, but the derivatives, if you want, or the spin-outs of Mobili. So Mobili is this computer vision company, right? We have the cameras that we have in the car and the technology behind it, which is top-notch technology um, for autonomous cars and not just autonomous cars, even regular cars. But the, what I like about it, acquired by Intel, I think, a year and a half ago. Multi-billion dollar deal. Yes, yeah. a huge, huge, I think 17 billion. I'm not, some, I don't remember. Some ridiculous number. Some ridiculous number, but but an incredible technology and, and, and innovation behind it. And what I like the most about it is that they've never thought of this technology only in, through one lens. So they have actually um, few spin-outs of Mobileye. The most famous one is those glasses for people um, with impaired vision where they can actually use that technology and read without being able of reading. Wow. Uh, and it's the same technology. It's, it's a different use of that technology in a different packaging. Um, and I find that just incredible to be able of thinking of so many use cases. Do you, do you think that's, sorry to spin off here, but do you think that's the... Spin off your spin off? Spin off mm -hmm. the spin off. Do you think that's the definition of creativity is taking something that exists and translating it to a completely different scenario is that if you had to define creativity 
this is also an, a manifestation of creativity. There's creativity of different types, but that's definitely one sort of creativity, yes. Yes, that multidisciplinary approach where you connect the dots of things that are seem not connected at all. Yes, yes. And a third company I'll mention is actually, the company is not a tragedy, but the story is a tragedy, but I do want to mention it. Um, it's a company um, co-founded by a biomarine um, PhD um, called one of them, so two partners, but one of them is Shimrit Perkolfinkel. Yesterday was her memorial day of 30 days after she was, um, she passed away in a car, well, not a car, but a scooter accident here in Tel Aviv. And um, what, her, the name of the company is Econcrete, Econ, Eco and Concrete, so Econcrete. And what Shimrit and her um, co-founder, Ida, did is actually change the whole way the world and mostly um, marine construction looks at concrete. They've created a different type of concrete for marine construction that actually enables growth and life within it. Um, and they have projects all over the world um, including at Richard Branson's islands. She, they won a price, and the price was to build some sort of construction there. But that's just a nice gimmick. But they, they really changed wow. um, the way uh, marine instructions are, are done. And uh, so that would be my third um, choice. And I can go forever. Like I'm I can sure. find many, many fascinating stories. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So if people want to follow you... Um, how can they follow you on social media? So on social media, Inbal Arieli. So I-N-B-A-L dot Arieli, A-R-I-E-L-I. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, and then another way would just go, another uh, easy way would be to go on my website of Chutzpah Center. So www.chutzpahcenter.com. But I guess we'll put all of we'll these links, right? We'll put all of this on the show notes, absolutely. Um, and there you can, you know, learn more about the books and the, the, the approach of the book. Um, and yoursynthesis.com is my company's website. Amazing. You know, we... Um I'm coming out of this. I actually didn't know what to expect coming into this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited. I'm encouraged by what's happening around us here uh, that you're a part of, that you're influencing, you're a tech influencer. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. This it, it, it's We have a lot of troubles in this country, but uh, and, and COVID was a tough year for the whole world, but this was just um, incredible to get a glimpse into huge success a part of the israeli success story and israelis who are just succeeding on a global level and it all you know and, and Firgun, you know I, i'm truly happy for every israeli who's succeeding yeah. as a part of this world um i'm going to encourage my kid to get into shimonim at times somehow yeah but they don't have to it doesn't have to be a know, life mission to go into shimonim i know it but he's he's crazy smart so <laughs> uh, he's a lot smarter than me that's for sure and um you know, uh, we wish you a wonderful uh, Independence Day celebration. Thank Maybe you. you'll get to see family and friends that you haven't been able to spend time with until recently yep. because we're all vaccinated now. I know I'm going to see my cousins and aunts and uncles that I haven't mm. seen in over a year. Um, I don't know about you. You, you kind of spend time with your family a lot more. Yeah. 
But, but we're uh, gonna have some barbecue. It's gonna be a good time. Barbecue the national holiday. So we thank you so much for joining us. Sure. I I, I, I w- there's one last thing I want to say. Please. So I said I'll keep the last word. Yes. Right. And on that positive note, so entrepreneurs and innovators they have to be optimistic by definition because the chances are always against them. They always hear no, 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 and they fail a lot and they do a lot of mistakes, and they have to maintain that optimistic approach to life, right? So almost every Israeli, when you will ask them just anything, the, the, the typical answer would be, ah, everything will be okay. It's going to be fine. Ah, it's going to be fine. And it seems like, you know, it's not serious enough because you, you can't say about everything, everything will be fine and just at any moment and the, the, the largest problem, like the smallest one. But here's, the, here's the, the, the special, if you want, the secret sauce of and that's the last word I kept is that it, everything will be fine means that I'm not sitting and waiting for things to be okay. It's my responsibility. It's my uh, motivation and my proactive approach to make things fine. So I say everything will be fine, but not from a passive approach. And with that, let's make everything fine like that's my uh, my wish and let's hope everything will be fine exactly for another 73 years yeah hmm. it is it's gonna be fine no question of course it'll be. of course <laughs> of course and <laughs> um we wish uh, all of our listeners here and in israel around the world a uh Happy Israeli Independence yes. Day. We wish you a happy Thank Independence you. Day. Thank you. I wish you as well. To all of our friends uh, around the Muslim world uh, celebrating Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak. This is happening this Tuesday. Um, and we also wish you a happy Independence Day if it's relevant for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this has been fun. Thanks so totally. much. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for, for inviting coming. me. And we'll see you next week on Juanced. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.